Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5 at WRAU, 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker. And as always, we are online at WAMU.org. The big broadcast is next. I'm Michael King. That will do it for me this weekend. Have a great night, and please stay safe. I'll talk with you next time. Good night. Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tonight, we salute two great stars we don't often hear about anymore, the Wizard of Oz scarecrow himself, Ray Bolger, and one of the first of the real matinee idols, Francis X. Bushman. We'll hear him on Our Miss Brooks, Let George Do It with Bob Bailey, You Bet Your Life, and My Friend Irma. Plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and not only Ray Bolger, but Danny Kay, Gary Cooper, and a few more stars sprinkled in on Tallulah Bankhead's The Big Show. Hey, especially this week, try to relax. And at least for a little while, don't worry about the week to come. Instead, let your imagination roam free right here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. Coming into a set of shows where America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator revisits the sites of some earlier triumphs you may remember, as in this episode, The Deadly Swamp Matter, from April 17th, 1960, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Sinclair, Mr. Dollar, and Kenneth, Missouri. Would it be possible for you to come out here right away? Kenneth, Missouri. What did you say your name is? Yeah, Charles Kingsley Sinclair. Uh, oh, yeah, with Providential Assurance Company. Yes, that's right. Yeah, now, wait a minute. I thought you were leaving the company. If you're such a gentleman, you just couldn't stand doing business with the poor, wretched clients you inherited. Yeah, Mr. Dollar, I am a changed man. Well, good for you. It is true that some of the people that I've been sent down here to deal with, well, I... I consider them nothing more than poor white trash, ignorant, illiterate. Well, I'll say this for them. They sure know how to make some pretty powerful moonshine. Right, very true. Yeah, if one of those characters hadn't poured some of that white mule down my gullet, I doubt if I'd have been crazy enough to go out after that killer. But thanks to you, Dave Whippleman was indicted, tried, found guilty, and has been incarcerated. Yeah, that was the one, Dade Whopperman. Unfortunately, Mr. Dollar, Dade has a brother. His name is Daniel. Did I, I beg your pardon? Daniel. He's been making trouble, very serious trouble. Oh, like what? Murders. I see. So if uh, you take a plane to Memphis, I shall be more than glad to meet you there. Oh, now look, mister, I was lucky once. Got out of that swamp country alive. But I'd be nuts to stick my neck out again. And since those people already know who I am, what my job is... 
Okay, St. Clair, I'll grab a plane. CBS Radio brings you Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Providential Assurance Company office in Kennett, Missouri. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the deadly swamp matter. Item one is 7645 Plain Fair, Hartford to Memphis. Charles Kingsley St. Clair met me as promised. And apparently the man had changed considerably from the snooty, better-than-thou stuff shirt I'd found him to be on my first trip. Yes, Mr. Dollar, in spite of my earlier feelings about the clients my predecessor had left me... Yeah, I know, Mr. St. Clair. Those moonshiners and such existing in that 20-mile swamp are hardly typical of the folks living around Kennett, where your office is. Oh, I realize that now, and I shall stay in Kennett, try to justify the company's confidence in placing me there. Very good. Nevertheless, when I came to this part of the country, the swamp people were the only ones with whom I had to deal. They were the only ones to whom he had sold insurance. And when I saw the horrible, dirty, squalid way in which they lived in those broken-down shacks full of vermin... Kind of turned your stomach, huh? Uh, quite frankly, it did exactly that. That's why I requested transfer to our New England offices. But now, of course, I plan to stay down here. Now, um... When you came here before, you taught me a great lesson in how to deal with them, how to understand them. Yeah? By having my car wrecked for me, by getting shot at and nearly drowned in that swamp. But you succeeded in enlisting the help, the cooperation of the uh, good ones among them. You're earning their respect. Well, I had to do something to get out of there alive. The point is that you did. You have friends among them now, and you'll be willing to help you again. Yeah, well, that's something that... Oh, now, wait a minute. Yeah. You mean these murders you call me about? They're back in that swamp country, too? Oh, great. Oh, no, 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 Mr. And I thought that maybe for once... Okay, St. Clair, let's have it. What's it all about? As I told you, a series of murders. So you're having to pay out a lot of insurance. No. And you think that I can somehow, miraculously, put a stop to... Huh? Did I hear you say no somewhere along the line? Oh, the victims of these murders have, uh, well, they've been, well, relatives of some of my clients. Up in the swamp country. Up in the swamp country. Well? Clients whom you know, whom you met when you were here before. Go on. And thanks to you and what you did for them, they regard the company, and therefore me, and you, as a kind of, well, a protective agency. A protection for them. With, with only their best interests at heart. Uh, that sort of thing is very good for the company. Yeah. Uh, shall we stop for some lunch? Yeah, sure, go ahead and stop if you like. But if you think you can talk me into meddling into these murders when it's a job for the law... Uh, but it's not for the law. What do you mean by that? Well, as I told you before, these, uh, these people living far beyond any town or city limit, they're pretty much a law unto themselves. Yeah, that I know. And the local police leave them alone. They have no jurisdiction. So what about the state authorities? Well, that region of the big swamp pretty much straddles the state line. Oh. Neither state wants it. And I can't blame them. In any event, when a murder occurs, by the time jurisdiction is established, 
Uh, Miss Dollar. Well? Do you remember the beneficiary of the policy you came down here to pay off with the insurance money? Mm. A Eufa Crump. That's right. Yeah, real sweet, pretty young kid, yes. St. Clair, I'll never forget the look in her eyes, the almost childish, unabashed gratitude when I gave her that money. Yes. Now she can have pretty clothes for a change, good food on the table. Oh, she can fix up that little house she and her kids live in, buy some lace curtains for the windows, and... Oh, what do you mean, no? Yufa was the latest victim of this killer. Come on, St. Clair. Tell me what you know so I can get to work on this thing. Yufa Crump. Yeah, what a name. But that cute, intelligent little girl really out of place in the swamp country. Well, regardless of how you or I or the law might feel about it, her inheriting that moonshine still when her husband was killed a while back had meant something to provide for both her and her children. And the insurance she received on top of it. And she planned to marry Cass Dingle, the character who'd befriended me, who'd helped me run down her husband's killer. Cass, who was going to leave this desolate country, get out in the world and make an honest living for her. Yeah, but it was Cass who'd sacrificed his life out there in the swamp in order to save mine. No, Mr. Dollar. What? Cass Dingle is still alive. But I myself saw Dade Wupperman shoot him in the back. You for somehow nursed him back to health. They were married according to whatever rights the swamp people observe, and they were very happy. And then she was murdered. Yes, that was Cass who asked me to call on you again. And since you know him, you know these people. Okay, you know. stop wasting time, St. Clair. Get me on up to Kennett where I can rent a car and get on this thing. Now, if you'll drop me at my office, I'll be more than glad to let you have this one. But, but uh, about some lunch. Lunch? Forget it. Let's get going. Item 2, 470 for a tank full of gas there in Kennett. And I headed west a few miles, then due north into the swamp country. Well, as I said before, the 20-mile swamp is one of the most dismal, uninviting places I've ever seen. The road after a while wasn't even a road, just a set of muddy wagon tracks. More than once, driving slowly and carefully along, I held my breath, hoping St. Clair's car wouldn't bog down in some mud hole. I passed a couple of shacks, falling apart and apparently vacant. But the distinctive smell of moonshine and whiskey in the air told me otherwise, that a still was in full operation. If Castingle had married Yufa, he'd gone to her place to live, so I headed that way. But a mile or so before I got there, edging the car around a thicket of wild blackberries... I had learned the last time I was here that when somebody starts shooting, the only thing to do is stop whatever you're in, whatever you're doing. So I did, fast. I ducked down under the wheel on the floorboards, and I pulled out my gun. And I waited. idea of pulling off a couple of shots. Howdy, Miss Johnny. I'm glad you come, sir. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew maybe a shot would make you stop the car, Miss Johnny. And that way you wouldn't go on up to the house in the still. Yeah, well, that's where I was headed, to look for you. It's much better you hide this car back in my old cabin. 
You remember where it is? Little turnoff right up ahead, isn't it? Yes, sir. Now, you do that, and I'll cut through the swamp and meet you there. Sure, whatever you say. I'll meet you there. I should have got there in five or six minutes at the most. The car bogged down in a sticky black mud hole. By the time I pulled enough twigs and branches under the wheels to get traction and make the turn off and pull up in front of his place, more than half an hour had passed. Because of his shortcut through the woods and the swamp, I'd expected to find Cass out in front waiting for me. But he wasn't, though the door of his cabin was ajar. Now, if I'd had any sense, I would have stopped for a minute, and I'd have given some thought to that. But I didn't. And believe me, it was a mistake. Come in, mister. Come right in. In the dark, windowless cabin, I could see Cass Dingle on a bunk at the far end, tightly bound with ropes and rawhide, looking at me helplessly. I said, come in. And standing in front of me was the biggest, most ugly man I've ever seen. 250 pounds at the least, built like a gorilla. His face was covered with coarse black stubble. His long hair straggled down into the back of the collar of his dirty shirt. Aimed at my chest was an ancient rifle with a bore almost big enough for a shotgun. That's better, mister. Now, Peter. You. John. Three specters came forward out of the shadows. Smaller men, also dirty, unshaven, looking no less menacing than the man in front of me. Each of them had a rifle. I could feel one of them against my backbone. Now listen, I took a course once from the FBI on the proper procedure for disarming a man who has a gun in your back. But they forgot to tell me what to do about four of them. So I raised my hands up over my head. That's right, Mr. Tanner. Now you just keep them hands right up straight. You, Paul? Yes, Daniel. Daniel. Daniel Walkerman. All right, now, Paul. You've taken Mr. Johnny's gun away from him. Yes, now, Will, Daniel. Yes, you've taken it away from him, Paul. I got it, Daniel. Ooh, it's a real pretty one. That's right, Paul. So you're holding on to it real careful. So and I won't damage it none. While and I kill him. And now, yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Deadly Swamp Matter. I've been in some pretty tough spots in this crazy job of mine. But nothing ever quite like this. Four men, like four vicious animals, who crawled up out of the muck of the 20-mile swamp, armed with ancient rifles I was sure they knew how to use and use well. For a man living and moonshining in this godforsaken country depended on his gun for survival. Survival. It was obvious by the way the guns were aimed that survival was the one thing they didn't plan for me. Like four vicious animals, I said. Stupid, maybe. Enough to be tricked somehow. And how? There wasn't anyone within miles to give me a hand. Except for Cass Dingle tied down on the bunk at the far end of the cabin, helpless. If only he were bright enough to... Then the ugly giant in front of me talked again. That's right. Daniel Wupperman. And I'm going to kill you, Mr. Johnny. Right now, for it being that you sent my brother Dade up into prison. He was a killer, Daniel. The same as you are. That's right. So one more killer, namely you, it ain't gonna make me no worse than I am. Why, Daniel? Because you had no business to come here to begin. 
We don't like that here in the swamp. No, no, I mean why these other killings? Why murder Yufa, Cass's wife? Why you do that now? Because it was her insurance money, Mr. Johnny, brought you here the first time. Then you put my brother in jail. So you murdered her, a harmless young mother, just to get me back here. That's right. Now I'm going to kill you. You stand away from him backing him. This charge going to go right on through him. Yes, Daniel. But now you no, should... No, no. It's all wrong you killed Miss Johnny. You shut up, Cass. Maybe... Maybe Cass, he thinking what I thinking, Daniel. Miss Johnny, he from the outside. You kill an outside man. Maybe they all... Maybe the police, they're moving in on us. They coming here in the swamp because he from the outside. You stop thinking, Paul. Move away now so I can kill him. No, Dan. Shut up, Cass. Ah, Mr. Johnny. No, Daniel, you kill me instead. Now you kill my wife, you, I don't care. You kill me instead, Daniel. I kill you, Cass. Soon I kill Miss Johnny. Miss Johnny? It's... It's all right, Cass. No, Miss Johnny, that ain't... What? I mean, I talk long enough. What can you say, Cass? Must be nearing to five o'clock by now, Miss Johnny. Five? Shut up, Cass, and what do you mean by that? Miss Johnny, no. Oh, yeah, you're right. What do you mean by five o'clock? Yeah, yeah, Cass, they ought to... I mean, it's about time. What do you mean, Miss Johnny? What, uh, nothing, not a thing, Daniel. I just whistled. That's all. I mean, what do you mean about five o'clock? You tell me. Tell me. Tell me. Be because it's nothing you can do anything about. Because if it is five o'clock, then by the time you can pull that trigger. You tell me. All right. If I'm not safely out of this swamp by five o'clock, this place will be so full of state police. Well... Would you like to look at my watch? No, you keeping your hands up over your head. Oh, sure. Because you lying, Mr. Johnny. Am I? You lying to me. Just keep on talking, Daniel. You'll get more time. But if I were you... I said I gonna kill you, Mr. Johnny. And no scheming words out in your mouth gonna... Gonna... You, Paul... I ain't heard nobody out there, Daniel. You go out. You go look out along the slough and the bio. Yes, Daniel. You see anybody in a boat, you shoot off that gun. You, Peter, you go on back the road and look. And you, John, you go look up by Cass still. You don't see no one. You come back here and help me bury Cass and Miss Johnny in the ground. Now you go. Yes, Daniel, come on, you. And the three of them, like so many shadows, slipped off into the growing darkness. Casting or storming is talking as though something would happen at five o'clock. It gained time for us. And more important, had reduced the immediate enemy to one. But Daniel's rifle was still aimed at my midsection. Then, after plenty of time for the others to have looked around. You see, Miss Johnny? You trying to bluff me is all. 
But that's no good. Because you haven't heard from them, Daniel? That means the police have taken them. Without them getting off a shot? No, Miss Janet. And I tell you that by 5 o'clock, and it must be 5 o'clock by now. It's getting dark, Miss Johnny. Yeah. Let, uh, let me look at my watch. You keep your hands right up to straight. It's long after 5 o'clock. Me, I prove it. I look at your little watch. Oh, yeah? You think I can't tell the time? Oh, I'm sure you can, Dan. But don't you move, Miss Johnny. Because I'm keeping this right in the middle of your belly. And you try and grab and I pull the trigger. Okay. Okay. Easy. Easy. Slowly. And see. Cautiously. Curled the gun still in my belly. He looked upward toward the watch on my wrist. And I turned my wrist ever so slightly away from him so that he had to twist his head a bit. Just a little. Long about, uh, ten, fifteen, maybe. Then I brought up my knee with everything I had. I knew the sound of the gunshot would bring the others back to the cabin. After all, they certainly hadn't found any sign of those mythical state police out there. So after setting Cass free, I lay down just inside the door looking very dead. And then when Paul and John and Peter came in one at a time, Cass, who was standing back at the door, quietly and carefully took care of them with the help of the butt of Daniel's gun. So now four more of the swampers have left that region to spend a long, long time behind the bars. Expense account total, including the trip back to Hartford... 16160. Yours truly, Johnny Dow. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's program. Next week, a thrilling, hair-raising chase out on the open sea. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dow. Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Ben Wright, Sam Edwards, Roy Glenn, and Big Farron. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Well... There was a welcome oddity in old-time radio, a black actor playing a white character. Daniel Wupperman, the deep-voiced villain in that piece, was portrayed by the veteran actor Roy Glenn, whom you may remember as Sidney Poitier's father in the 1967 film Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Seven years earlier, he was featured in that episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, The Deadly Swamp Matter, from the spring of 1960, and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. One of our holiday offerings last month 
on Christmas night, in fact, was a family theater play about three astronomers and a little girl looking for the Star of Wonder. One of those not-so-wise men was portrayed by the actor Francis X. Bushman. And I mentioned at the time the irony of Mr. Bushman's career as one of the biggest stars of the silent screen he was seen but never heard. And as a busy actor in radio for the next few decades, he was heard but never seen. I bring this up again because Francis X. Bushman, who passed away 45 years ago, was born on this date in 1883. We'll hear from him a few times tonight, including right now, in an Our Miss Brooks episode in which he plays the superintendent of schools. There's a reference to the singing Andrews sisters, Patty, Laverne, and Maxine. The show comes from January 15th, 1950, CBS, and the series Our Miss Brooks. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Well, last Friday fell on the 13th of the month, a day of caution for the superstitious. But to our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, it didn't mean a thing. No, indeed. Even when my landlady told me at breakfast that our cat Minerva came home with two black kittens, I just laughed and said, Mrs. Davis, no. <laughs> oh, yes. They've just had our last drop of milk. But Minerva and I were always so friendly. She didn't say a word to me about this. <laughs> oh, the kittens aren't Minerva's. I don't know where they belong. All I know is that we can't afford to keep them. It would mean two more mouths to feed. You're right, Mrs. Davis. We've got enough trouble feeding the mouths we've got. <laughs> Say, I've got an idea. We could leave them in the Snodgrass pet shop until we located the owners. Stretch's father has all sorts of things in his place. That's true. He even has Stretch. <laughs> Good old Stretch. That boy certainly is a fine athlete. Yes, he is. Now, if there was only some way we could find to exercise his brain. <laughs> Don't worry about the kittens, Mrs. Davis. I'll have Walter Denton drop them off at the pet shop on our way to school this morning. Good. And one more thing, Connie. Would you deliver this jar to Mr. Conklin when you get to school? Certainly, Mrs. Davis. What have you cooked up for our beloved principal? It's a secret concoction, Connie. My own recipe. It never fails. Good. How long does it take to work, and will they find out what's in it at the autopsy? <laughs> it's just a remedy for hiccups, Connie. It contains nothing but juniper juice, oil of cloves, a dash of vinegar, some vanilla extract, a spoonful of baking soda... Uh, tell me the rest after breakfast. <laughs> Well, that's about all there is to it. But it's very good. Mrs. Conklin says it's just a nervous reaction. She called last night and told me he got the hiccups yesterday, just a few minutes after he found out that the superintendent of schools is visiting him this afternoon. Mr. Michael? Why should he give Mr. Conklin the hiccups? Well, there's a new term starting in February, and it seems that Mr. Michaels wants to chat with Osgood about the way he's running Madison. You mean if Mr. Michaels finds fault with something, there's a chance that Mr. Conklin may not be... Oh, now cut it out, Connie. You're too old to live in a dream world. <laughs> oh, that's Walter Denton. Come in, Walter. Oh, I'd better go into the kitchen. I've got to clean those dishes I used for the kitten's milk. <laughs> 
Why don't you let Minerva do the dishes? They're her friends. Brooks, did I hear Mrs. Davis mention kittens? Just some transient acquaintances, Walter. We're going to drop them off at Stretch's pet shop on the way to school. Oh, swell. Stretch will get a big kick out of them. He loves animals. All kinds of animals. I know. You've been friends for years, haven't you? <laughs> I hope you're not superstitious, Walter, but these are both black cats, and today is Friday the 13th. Oh, that doesn't bother me, Miss Brooks. This is going to be a red-letter day in my memory. The day when the results of careful planning should be brought to fruition. Translation? Well, you've heard of Cure That Habit Incorporated, haven't you? You mean the outfit that helps people overcome alcoholism? Yes, ma'am. They got a big ad in the papers. You know, perhaps you or someone near and dear to you is a victim of this dread disease. Send for our instructive literature telling how you, too, can be cured. Well, the day before yesterday, I sent for it. You, Walter? I always thought you were strictly a two-coke-a-day man. <laughs> I didn't sign my name and address to the request. I printed the name of someone very near and dear to me. Who? Osgood Conklin. Walter, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Conklin doesn't drink. Why, even on New Year's Eve, he just had fruit punch. His proudest boast is that he's a teetotaler. Well, that's the humor of it. When he gets all this stuff in the mail, he'll think that somebody somewhere doesn't believe that he doesn't drink. That thought alone should turn him purple. Well, it would be quite a picturesque spectacle. But I still don't think it's right, Walter. Does Harriet know about this rib? Of course not. She's his daughter. She likes Mr. Conklin. <laughs> well, she's bright in other ways. <clears throat> now, come on, Walter. We've got to get started for school if we're going to drop those kittens off. Okay, Miss Brooks. Oh, uh, one thing before we go. Everything I've told you today is strictly confidential. And not that I'm asking for an oath of secrecy or anything... I know that I couldn't possibly feel the admiration and respect for you that I do feel if I thought you'd rat on me. I mean, betray my confidence about this joke that I'm pulling. Well, don't worry, Walter. Your secret is safe with me. Miss Brooks, that statement makes me feel warm all over. Really? Sure. In a dangerous practical joke like this, it's great to know that somebody else is in it with you up to her ears. <laughs> Sorry to have kept you waiting, Mr. Chalmers. What can I do for you? Well, Mr. Michaels, as superintendent of schools, you're acquainted, no doubt, with the principal of Madison High School. Oh, yes, that's Osgood Conklin. Matter of fact, I'm going to see him this afternoon. Then I'd very much like to go with you. You see, Mr. Michaels, my son attends Madison High, and I'm very anxious to find out the meaning of this postcard which arrived at my office this morning. Postcard? Yes, sir. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's addressed to Cure That Habit Incorporated. That's my friend, Mr. Michaels. And it says, uh, kindly send me all your literature. I am determined once and for all to rid myself of the curse of alcoholism. It's signed, Osgood Conklin. Here we are, Miss Brooks. Dear old Madison and I. I should have known that the Snodgrass Pet Shop doesn't open until nine. What in the world are we going to do with these kittens, Walter? Gosh, I don't know, Miss Brooks. Mr. Conklin's awfully strict about pets in the building. The only animals allowed are in Mr. Boynton's lab. Oh, say, we could keep them in there until lunch period. That's right. Then Stretch could take them over to his dad's shop. Come on, Walter, let's take them in. Wait a minute, where are the kittens? I got them in my sweater pocket. See, uh, here's one. Meow. And uh, here's the other one. Meow. 
<laughs> so much for Maxine and Laverne. Hello, Miss Brooke. Hello, Patty. I mean, Harriet. Just <laughs> hey, Harriet. Well, I gotta run now. I'll talk to you later. Okay, Walter. How does your dad feel, Harriet? Are the hiccups gone? Yes, Miss Brooks. They disappeared about an hour ago. But I'm afraid it isn't permanent. Every time something unpleasant happens, it brings them on again. Well, maybe this remedy that Mrs. Davis sent down will be of some help. I'd better take it into him right now. All right, Miss Brooks. See you in class. Come in. It's me, Mr. Conklin. Oh, Miss Brooks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're back. Who's back? Wake up! Does that answer your question? Maybe you should see a doctor, Mr. Conklin. Saw a doctor yesterday. Pick up! <laughs> Told me to relax, and they go away. Relax. Pick up! <laughs> What's in that jar you've got there? It's a hiccup cure that Mrs. Davis asked me to give you. She made it herself. What's in it? Nothing but juniper juice, oil of cloves, a dash of vinegar, some vanilla extract, and baking soda. I'd rather have the hiccup. <laughs> If you haven't got anything else handy, maybe you ought to try some of Mrs. Davis's remedy. Well, I might take just one swallow of the stuff. Give it here. Uh... Well, Mr. Conklin, what does it taste like? Well, it tastes like... <laughs> like... <laughs> like... <laughs> like... What's the difference as long as it does the job? <laughs> giving Mr. Conklin an antidote for Mrs. Davis's hiccup remedy, I returned to my classroom and whiled away the hours before lunch by teaching a bit of English. Promptly at noon, I found myself, by the amazing coincidence which occurs daily, at Mr. Boynton's biology lab. Come in. Oh, it's you, Miss Brooks. I'm glad you dropped in. Very glad indeed. Honestly, Mr. Boynton? I should say so. You've got to get these cats out of here. Oh, about that. Walter Denton has asked Stretch to pick them up and take them to the Snodgrass Pet Shop. Oh, good. Where are they, Mr. Barney? Well, I had to keep them over here in a separate cage, away from the white mice. They, uh, they were pretty upset. Cats do that to mice as a rule. <laughs> well, here they are. Meow. Meow. <laughs> this one loves to be petted. So does this one, for that matter. Hello, Mr. Boynton. I... Oh, excuse me, Miss Brooks. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, that's all right, Stress. Oh, I don't mind waiting if you want to finish your song. No, thanks. I don't know the rest of the words. Are these the cats Walter wants me to take down to the shop? Oh, that's right, Stretch. You think you can handle them all right? Oh, sure. I love animals. Gosh, I think animals are smarter than a lot of people of whom I'm acquainted with. <laughs> I know they're smarter than some people of whom I'm acquainted with. Before I take the cats, Mr. Boynton, I'd like to talk to you about a swap. You got a bullfrog in here I'd like to show my dad. Oh, you don't mean my pet McDougal? Oh, no, sir. I know you wouldn't let Mac out of your sight. I mean this big fellow over here. Oh, boy. 
Hiya, big fella. Mm. <laughs> See, he knows me. Say more, fella. Mm. He certainly talks your language. <laughs> if you'll let me have him, Mr. Boynton, I'll give you Clarence. Clarence? I got him right here in my pocket. There he is. Well, don't be scared. He's perfectly harmless, isn't he, Mr. Boynton? Oh, yes, of course. It's completely non-poisonous, Miss Brooks. This little creature's a milk snake. That's right, Miss Brooks. Just a little old milk snake. Must take a pretty shallow bucket. <laughs> well, he couldn't possibly hurt anyone, Miss Brooks. He's just a baby. That doesn't prove anything. When I was a baby, I bit people all the time. <laughs> him away, Stretch, please. Well, yes, Stretch. You keep the snake and uh, take the frog along, too. Gee, thanks, Mr. Boynton. I'll take awful good care of him. Don't forget the kitten, Stretch. Well, I won't. Let's see now. Well, it's a good thing I wore my sport jacket today. I can put the kittens in the side pockets, the frog in an inside pocket, and Clarence in my breast pocket. Too bad you're not a kangaroo. You could give me a lift to the cafeteria. <laughs> Oh, I'm not going to the cafeteria. I got to go to the principal's office and clean it up. Mr. Conklin's expecting some high brass down. You mean the chandelier's loose? <laughs> no, ma'am. The superintendent of schools is coming here. And that reminds me, Mr. Conklin says that you should inspect his office as soon as I get through and see that everything's spick and span. Me? That's right, Miss Brooks. Well, I better get going. Thanks for the keen frog, Mr. Boynton. Oh, you're welcome, Stretch. See you in a little while, Miss Brooks. Oh, that's just dandy. Now I won't be able to accept your charming invitation to lunch, Mr. Boynton. What invitation? Oh, oh, you mean to lunch? Oh. <laughs> Gee, Miss Brooks, maybe you could have a quick lunch with me and then inspect Mr. Conklin's office. I hate to disappoint you, Mr. Boynton, but that's just what I'm going to do. <laughs> clean. Mr. Conklin's office looks neat as a pin. Don't you think so, Miss Brooks? Let's see. Yes, it looks very nice, Stretch. Mr. Conklin should be very pleased when he gets back from lunch. Oh, I hope so. Now I'll put my jacket back on and get these animals back to the... Hey, wait a minute. They're gone. Who's gone? Everybody. <laughs> the frog and the snake. He must have crawled out of my pockets when I put my jacket down. Oh, no. Well, they must be in the office somewhere. We've got to find them before... Well, let's see how the place looks. Mr. Conklin. Ah, you've done a very nice job, Stretch. Well, thanks, Mr. Conklin, You can but... run along now. Miss Brooks, you will stay here and help me find some papers. Yes, sir. Oh, but, Mr. Conklin... I've I... already thanked you, Snodgrass. Now go. <laughs> <laughs> now then, Miss Brooks, I've been trying to locate the semi-annual report I made to the Board of Education six months ago. Will you kindly look in the top drawer of my desk while I try the closet here? Very well, Mr. Conklin. Yeah. Oh. Uh, it's not in there. You hardly looked, Miss Brooks. I saw enough. Not in here either. Oh, it must be in this drawer. Let me look for myself. Yeah. You were right, Miss Brooks. There's nothing in there but a cat. Well, maybe it's in this other drawer. No, just another cat. <laughs> well, in that case, I'll simply have... Just another cat! <laughs> Miss Brooks, what 
are those two cats doing in my desk? Maybe they're looking for the report, too. Uh, they, they might have strayed in through an open window, Mr. Conklin. I'll have them removed at once. Well, see that you do. But first, go look in my filing cabinet. Yes, sir. Uh, look under letter B. Yes, sir. <laughs> what are you doing in here? You should be filed under F. Here, Mr. Conklin. Well, it must be somewhere. Let me look. Ah, uh, what's in this badge? Uh, let's see. One letter from Boys Town. My Beaver Patrol badge. One communication from the board. <coughs> One frog. <laughs> An invitation to the Elks Barbecue. Another notice of a board meeting. A letter from... One frog! There's a frog hopping around my filing cabinet. Frog? Yes, he's jumping all over the place. What will I do, Miss Brooks? Why don't you hit him with the snake that's crawling on your coat lapel? <laughs> that's a good idea. I'll just take this snake and then I'll... Take this snake! <laughs> Here, Mr. Conklin, just file him under S. What? What's going on here? Miss Brooks, look! Look, this mark on my hand. That snake bit me. I'm poisoned! Oh, but Mr. Conklin, he I've couldn't. got to be inoculated. Quick, take me to the first aid room. Now, just sit in that chair and relax for a minute, Mr. Conklin. I'll be right back. As you say, Miss Brooks. Well, fire, Miss Brooks. I got all the animals out of Mr. Conklin's office. Good. For a while there, he thought the snake bit him. But I've convinced Mr. Conklin that the mark on his hand is just a bruise. In fact, I was looking for some rubbing alcohol, but they seem to be out of it in first aid. Well, I'll get you some over at the gym. But first, I'd like to cheer Mr. Conklin up a bit. Fire, Mr. Conklin. Let's see your hand. There. All black and blue. <laughs> that ain't nothing at all, Mr. Conklin. The skin ain't even broke. You got nothing to worry about. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> now that... Now that... There they are again. Oh, don't worry about them, Mr. Conklin. I didn't expect you'd be concerned, Miss Brooks. Well, frankly, after hearing nothing but mouse and all day, it's a relief to hear a... <laughs> Oh, I know, a sure cure for hiccups, Mr. Conklin. Now, just sit back in that swivel chair for a minute. I am sitting back. Swell. Now the idea is to start spinning you around slowly. Yeah, uh, Stretch, stop that. But it never fails. Stretch, you mustn't spin Mr. Conklin like that. I know, we got to spin him faster. Oh, no, Stretch. Let go of me. Stop this at once, you hear me? You can't do this. Stop it, I say. Stretch, stop. Uh, there. Daddy, I've been looking all over for you. Who are these girls who just came in? <laughs> it's me, Daddy. Harriet. Oh, Mr. Michaels is waiting for you in your office. Oh, oh, thank you, Harriet. I just got up. Oh, oh, I can hardly stand. I'm so dizzy. Maybe you ought to spin around the other way for a while. <laughs> well, let me help you, Mr. Conklin. I'll deal with you later, boy. Meanwhile, Miss Brooks, you go ahead and tell Mr. Michaels I'll be right there. I'll lean on Harriet and stretch until I feel a little stronger. So you see, Mr. Michaels, I certainly wouldn't want my boy in a school run by someone who had to come to my firm for assistance. I'm sure there must be some mistake, Mr. Chalmers. I've known Osgood Conklin for a good many years, and whatever else he may be, 
He's not the drinking man. Good day, gentlemen. I'm Miss Brooks. Mr. Conklin will be here in a minute. I'm Mr. Michaels, Miss Brooks, and this is Mr. Chalmers. How do you do? How do you do? Uh, tell me, Miss Brooks, uh, how is Mr. Conklin feeling these days? Feeling? Yes. Oh, just fine. He's never been better. Good. You see, Mr. Chalmers, I'm sure that one look at Mr. Conklin will convince you that he's not the type of person who sends postcards to cure that habit incorporated. Hello, Mr. Michaels. Sorry I'm late. There you go. you up, Mr. Conklin. I uh, must have tripped, Mr. Michaels. And who are these gentlemen with you? These gentlemen are Mr. Chalmers. <laughs> Shake hands with the one in the middle. <laughs> Pleasure to know you, Mr. Chalmers. Don't look now, but that's Mr. Michaels. Mm -hmm. Here's Mr. Chalmers. Oh, of course. <laughs> Glad to shake your hand, Mr. Chalmers. You're shaking his umbrella. <laughs> what seems to be the matter, Mr. Conklin? Having trouble with your vision? Uh, yes, yes, that's it. I broke my glasses this morning. Well, I'll get over here and <coughs> sit down at my desk. Mr. Michaels, look at him stagger. Incredible. Miss Brooks, you said Mr. Conklin never felt better. That's right. You should have seen him an hour ago. <laughs> Boy, what hiccups. <laughs> hiccups? Uh, yes, yes. I always get them when I'm startled. And uh, what may I ask startled you? He opened his desk drawer this morning and saw a cat in it. Tell me, Mr. Conklin, in which drawer did you, uh, see the cat? Well, the first cat I saw was in this drawer. In this drawer, Mr. Conklin? No, no, there's another cat in there. <laughs> it was the one in here that startled me. Oh, would you mind showing us your cats, Mr. Conklin? Not at all. They're right here in these drawers. Uh, uh, why, they're gone. They, uh, they come and they go, Mr. Conklin? Miss, Miss Brooks, where are the cats? They disappeared right after I took you to first aid. <laughs> but he really did see them, gentlemen. Indeed. The next thing you'll be trying to tell us is that he found a bullfrog in his filing cabinet. <laughs> How did you know? Bullfrog, too? There must be some error here. Yes, he was filed under B instead of F. <laughs> well, Mr. Michaels, do you believe me now? Well, I'm afraid I do, Mr. Chalmers. Thompson, I don't want to seem unnecessarily cruel, but if you want to stay on as principal of this... Oh, pardon me, folks. Oh, here's your alcohol, Mr. Conklin. I'll take it, Stretch. <laughs> Miss Brooks, that alcohol is for Mr. Conklin? Yes, it's for where the snake bit him. <laughs> yes, of course, it, re it really didn't bite him. He just thought it did. Oh. So, so you saw a snake too, Mr. Conklin? Yes, yes, I did, right on my lapel. Although I'm told <laughs> he's not poisonous, snakes still give me an extremely unpleasant feeling. I assure you that if I ever see him again, I'll... Wait a minute. There he is under your chair, Mr. Chalmers. Look out. I'll get him, Mr. I'll get him. There. Good for you, Mr. Conklin. You have just killed Mr. Chalmers' umbrella. <laughs> Getting out of here. This man is dangerous. I'll go with you, Mr. Chalmers. As for you, Mr. Conklin, I'll talk to you again when you're sober. 
Sober? Mr. Chalmers here is the head of Cure That Habit Incorporated. Oh, no. This card he received yesterday will explain why he called on me this morning. Good day. Cure This Habit Incorporated? What has that got to do with me? Miss Brooks, read this card for me. It says, kindly send me all your literature. I am determined once and for all to rid myself of the curse of alcoholism. And it's signed, Osgood Conklin. Poor soul. <laughs> Any man who has to resort to writing in it. Osgood Conklin! <laughs> I know you didn't write this postcard because I know who did. But it was only a little Friday the 13th joke, and I'm honor-bound not to mention who did it. Oh, you are. <laughs> well, Miss Brooks, such loyalty is worthy of a better fate than the one under which you are about to crumble. <laughs> you see, you and I have traveled the road of learning together for some time now. It hasn't always been a smooth road. But it's been our road, Miss Brooks. Now, do you know what's in store for you? I believe I do, Mr. Conklin. Pass me the rubbing alcohol. The rubbing alcohol? Yes, I might as well have one for the road. As our Miss Brooks returns in just a moment, but first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight? Yes, tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Luster cream, world's finest shampoo. No other shampoo in the world gives K. Dumas magic blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Not a soap, not a liquid. Luster Cream Shampoo leaves hair three ways lovelier. Fragrantly clean, free of loose dandruff, glistening with sheen, soft, manageable. Even in hardest water, Luster Cream lathers instantly. No special rinse needed after a Luster Cream Shampoo. So gentle, Luster Cream is wonderful even for children's hair. Tonight? Yes, tonight, try Luster Cream Shampoo. Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl, you owe your crowning glory to a luster cream shampoo. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, much to my surprise, Mr. Conklin didn't dismiss me on the spot, but he did insist that I report to his office immediately after school. On my arrival, he told me we were going down to Mr. Michael's office immediately. But, Mr. Conklin, what good will that do? If you won't tell me who sent that card in, perhaps you'll tell the superintendent of school. Now, wait. Right where you are, Miss Brooks. I'm going to get my hat and coat out of the closet. Yes, Mr. Conklin. Hiya, Miss Brooks. Gee, I'm glad Mr. Conklin's not here. Walter, wait Look a minute. Look at this. Here's an ad for another one of those liquor cures I'm going to sign his name to. Boy, I wish I could see his face when he finds out about this one. I'll bet he'll be positively purple. <laughs> oh, purple isn't the word for it. Oh, Marblehead'll turn all the colors of the rainbow. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Brooks, what should I do now? There's only one thing you can do. Plead insanity. <laughs> 
Next week, tune into another hour, Miss Brooks show, brought to you by Lustre Clean Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, Bill Lally, Leonard Smith, and Francis X. Bushman. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North Tuesday evening over most of these stations. And be with us again at the same time next week for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. From 71 years ago this week, an episode of Our Miss Brooks, sometimes called Cure That Habit Incorporated. It came to you from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. That show featured Francis X. Bushman in the role of Mr. Michaels, the school superintendent. Mr. Bushman was a legendary star, and he got the legendary star treatment from Groucho Marx when he and his wife appeared on You Bet Your Life in 1958. By that time, the show, including Groucho's announcer foil, George Fenneman, had moved to television. Here's the relevant excerpt of that broadcast from February 3rd, 1958, NBC and Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life. Groucho, we have some special guests for you now. One of the uh, truly great names of Hollywood, Mr. and Mrs. Francis X. Bushman. Well, welcome please. to your best life. Play the secret word in the last 1,500 hours. Say the secret word and you'll divide an extra $100. It's a common word, something you find around the house. Francis, I'm glad to see you. And Mrs. Bushman, it's nice to see you, too. In case you don't know who this fellow is, I'll tell you. He's the Elvis Presley of the 1920s. He was a combination of Rudolph Valentino and Claude Gable. He was, without a doubt, the biggest matinee idol in the history of Hollywood. Francis, I hardly know where to start with you. I guess the beginning is as good a place as any. Where were you from originally? Baltimore, Maryland. <laughs> Somebody out there from North Dakota. <laughs> How long ago was it when you were born in Baltimore? Oh, it, I was born in 1883, so I'll be 75 in January. <laughs> How many of you people out front remember Francis X. Bushman? Well, that confirms something that I've always suspected, Francis. We have the oldest audi audience in television. <laughs> now, Mrs. Bushman, I know his name, but what is your front name? Ivor. Now, Ivor, you, you know, 35 years ago, every woman in America wanted to marry this chap here. How do you feel being married to one of the country's idols? Oh, it's wonderful. I'm still very excited about it, and I've been married a whole year. You've been married a year? Mm -hmm. You kids are practically newlyweds, huh? <laughs> Just about. How did you meet him, Ivor? Well, I moved into the house next door to him. Did you do this deliberately? Did you know he was going to be there? Uh, no, I didn't. That was just some of the uh, good fortune that befell oh. me after I was an escrow. Oh. <laughs> How many years have you been in show business, Francis? Sixty years. Sixty years? 
Well, don't get discouraged. It takes time to become a big star. <laughs> Sixty years. That was even before they had movies. How, do, how did you start? Well, I started in with lantern slides, and as you see, I'm ending up in television. Just the opposite with me. Now I'm in television. Next year, I'll be in lantern slides. <laughs> I wonder how I'll do when pay lantern slides comes in. <laughs> Now, Francis, you were the biggest star in Hollywood. How many pictures did you star in? Between three and four hundred. There was no Imagine way of determining. That. I think in the Marx Brothers, in our entire career, I think we did 18 pictures, and you mm. did 400. Huh? That was before taxes took it all away, wasn't it? Huh? Yes. You must be worth millions, are you, Francis? Well, the, the uh, Treasury Department at one time stated that I had made... Uh, Six millions in five years, but... Uh, That's what they said, huh? What did, you, what did you say? Well, I said that I spent it, no doubt, in four and a half years. <laughs> now, how about the women of the country? Uh, didn't you get a lot of marriage proposals in those days? Well, I had to confess... Fan mail? You'll, uh, you won't think me immodest if I tell you this. I, I may, but tell it anyhow. Well, you see, they were, I was a symbol. They were in love with the symbol, I believe. And I, at one period, received 17,000 proposals. I got, I, had I got 300 ones, but to get out of the country, mine was. <laughs> you know, I've gone almost through the same thing. All my life, women have been throwing themselves at my feet. And after they tackle me, they usually hold me for the police. <laughs> well, don't you miss all this hoopla, Francis? All the big mansions and fancy cars and the fan mail and everything? Well, the play isn't over yet. No, it certainly isn't. Not the way you look. No. I think you're still in the first act. <laughs> well, they still recognize me and want my autograph and all that sort of thing. And as a matter of fact, I live for today and I'm looking forward to the future. Well, that's a very sensible philosophy, Francis. I, on the other hand, am looking forward to tomorrow. Well, it's tomorrow. I make my last payment on my garbage disposal. <laughs> it's been quite a grind, but that's all down the drain. <laughs> well, now, let's get on with the Bushman at hand, huh? okay. shall we? And uh, you have selected as your category... Cities and small towns of the United States, or all those one-nighters you played, I'll bet you're pretty yeah. good at this. Huh? I'll give you four cities or towns in a particular state, and you identify the state. Shake hands with a real actor, yes. George. Yes. Uh, George. This is Mr. Fenneman. Mr. Fenneman. Who's being discharged as soon as the performance is over. <laughs> now, if you miss two in a row, you're out. If you get four in a row right, you win $1,000. Remember, despite the fact that you're married, your partner's in this thing, so you discuss each one before you answer. Clear? All right, in what state are these places? Paragool, Pine Bluff, Texacana, and Hot Springs? Moore says Arkansas. Moore is absolutely right. Arkansas is right. Yeah. You have one right. Uh, Soda Springs, Gooding, Moscow, and Pocatello. What's the state? Idaho. That's right. You have so, two right. Tallulah Banquet? No, Tallulah. <laughs> Baton Rouge, St. Bernard, and Crowley. What's the state? Louisiana. Louisiana is right. You get the next one right, you'll have $1,000. Tombstone, Welton, Winslow, and Claypool. Winslow, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Arizona. I need to go no further, Mr. Mm -hmm. Bushman. You've won $1,000. I think I played all those. <laughs> yes, I have too. 
Now, you want... I can't go back, but you can. Now, you want $1,000. You can keep it and quit, or else you can come back later and try to double your money. You may even get a chance at 10000 So go up and sit down and think about it. And if we don't see you later, thanks for being on the show. It was Thank nice you. seeing you, Good Francis. Francis X. Bushman and his wife, Eva, with Groucho Marx and George Fenneman on You Bet Your Life in the winter of 1958. Mr. Bushman was born on this date in 1883. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at wamu.org. Gunsmoke's creators, I'm sure, thought of themselves as tolerant and progressive, especially when it came to addressing matters of race in their stories. The show you're about to hear uses terms and a sometimes patronizing tone that, six and a half decades later, we'd find offensive. And the portrayal of an Asian character by a white Anglo actor would itself be considered an insult nowadays. Nonetheless, we offer this episode both as an insight into the history of race in America, the central issue in our nation's story, and as a demonstration of how it was treated in an entertainment medium 67 years ago. From July 19th, 1954, it's the episode called The Q from the CBS series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job that makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Shut the door, Chester. It's fly time. Yes, sir, I know, but I think you'd better... Come Shut up. the door, will you? Uh, Mr. Dillon? All right, Chester. Now, what are you so riled up about? Pless, Braden, and Howard Rabb. Braden and Rabb? It's too hot for those two to be causing any trouble, isn't it? Oh, it sure is hot, sir, but that don't bother them. They, they get a chance to bully somebody. They do it in the middle of a blizzard. Yeah, we were talking about heat, not cold, Chester. Yes, sir. But don't let that stop you. No, sir. Why don't you start right from the beginning, huh? Yes, sir. Good. 
Well, sir, there's a little Chinese fella with a big tail and all, a real Chinaman. He just come in to dodge on a freighter's wagon, and uh-huh. right now, Braden and Rab, they got him pushed up against the wall out there. What? Well, what for? What are they doing to him? Well, they're not hurting him, but they're kind of deviling him and poking fun at him, and I don't think they are. I told them to leave him alone. But, Mr. Dillon, I sure do wish you'd go tell him. All right, Chester, I'll go tell him. Do declare if there's anything I hate, it's a bully. Well, maybe they're just curious about him, Chester. I guess he's the first Chinaman that's ever been in Dodge. Mm, wait till you hear him. There they are, yonder. I don't think he understands a word they're saying. He, he, he's just backed up there, staring at him and holding tight to that little box he's got. Well, maybe that's what they want. That little box? Well, there couldn't be much in it. Probably just his medicine or something. He's not an Indian, Chester. No, sir, but maybe them Chinese fellas have medicine, too. Look there how he's hanging on to it. <laughs> you sure don't talk very good, do you, Rat? Somebody must have split his tongue. No, Chinese boys always sound like that. Here, now look, fella. I'm just going to ask you once more. What you doing here in Dawes? Me come catch a job. Me all time work hard. Job, huh? Well, you're the first Chinaman i ever seen around here. I sure hope you ain't brought your family with you. No family. One man, one boy, all the same as me. No family. Well, that's one good thing. Why shouldn't the man have a family, oh. Rab? Oh. Hello, Marshal. Why shouldn't he have a family? Well, you want a lot of Chinamen running around loose here? No, got family. Got cousin, one cousin, San Francisco, him, very good Chinaman. What's your name, fella? Chen Long Wong. Me good boy. Got place, Dodge City. All time work hard. Well, you go all time work hard in San Francisco, because we sure don't need no Chinaman here. Chen, I'm the marshal here, and you're welcome in Dodge. You can stay here just as long as you like. What are you mixing in this for, Marshal? Ain't no law says we gotta have China boys around here. You ain't got no right protecting him. He's just a dirty foreigner, ain't Except he? for the Indians. We're all foreigners here, Braden. And I told you you're welcome, and you are. And if either one of these men bother you again, you come tell me about it, huh? No fight. Very bad men fight. Whoever heard of the law standing up for China? I don't care if he's an Eskimo, Rab. You leave him alone. Well, look look at that box, Marshal. It's probably full of money he stole somewhere. No money. Chen, very good boy. No steal money. Oh, who's going to believe you? Get out of here. What? Both of you, go on. Move. See about this later. I never heard of nothing like it. Me very sad, Marshal. Chen, no right bring trouble. Well, I'll worry about the trouble, Chen. Tell me, uh, what, what kind of work do you do? We catch a place. Very good cook. A cook, huh? Uh, what kind of cooking do you do, Chen? All kind. Chinese cook, American cook, all kind. See, now, I never ate no Chinese food. What's it like? Very good. You see, when I catch a job. You know what, Mr. Dillon? We ought to take him over to the Dodge house. Oh, why? Well, sir, Mr. Green fired the cook he had yesterday. Might be he ain't found another one yet. Oh, all right, Chester. Uh, you take him over, huh? I got to do some work back at the office. Okay, sir. You come on along with me, Chen. Very good. We come. And remember what I said about Rab and Braden, Chen. You come tell me if they give you any trouble.
Mr. Green at the Dodge House took a chance and hired Chet Wong that day. And it turned out he wasn't lying about being a good cook. He was about the best that we'd ever had in Dodge. And neither was he lying about working hard. Mr. Green let him sleep in the storeroom off the kitchen. And there he stayed. Out of sight. And for a while, out of trouble. There was some talk about heathen Chinese and how we didn't need any of them in Dodge, but nobody did anything about it. And I was hoping everything was going to be all right. Until one day when I happened to go up to Doc Adams' office just to kill a little time. Oh, hello, man. Come in, come in. How are you, Doc? I'll be right with you, man. As I finish with Chen Wong here. Oh? Well, what's the matter with Chen? There, lying right there. That's what was the matter with him. Oh, you lost the tooth, huh? Well, Chen, you'd have been better off doing the job yourself. Doc's as likely to pull a good one as a bad one. Forgiveness isn't one of your greatest virtues, is it, man? You know, I lost a perfectly good tooth that day, Doc, and you still charge me for it. And why not? I took the bad one out, too, didn't I? Oh, yeah, sure, finally, once you got sobered up. When I get sobered, oh, I had been 48 hours without sleep. Uh-huh. I delivered two babies, 30 miles apart, too, and in the dead of winter. Oh, I should have let your jaw go on aching. Might have taught you a lesson. What kind of a lesson, Doc? Humility. Well, I always figured I was a pretty humble man. Oh, yes, you did. You humble? Oh, oh, you're about as humble as a Bronco Apache. <laughs> there you are, Chen. I'm through. But you better let me take a look at that in a day or two. Thank you, Doctor. I'll come back. How much do I owe you? Five dollars. May I pay you next time? You see, I won't get my salary from Mr. Green until Saturday, and I have no money except for that. Why, sure, Chen. Of course, any time. Oh, <laughs> Chen, the first time I saw you, you were, you were being a belly good Chinese boy, all the time working hard, catching job, that kind of a thing. Is that not how a Chinese is supposed to talk, Marshal? Well, I thought it was till just now. Most of my countrymen do talk like that, Marshal. English is a very difficult language for us. Well, what about you? I was more fortunate than most. When I first came to America, I worked for a man who was very kind. He taught me and made me study and practice several hours every day. I see. But uh, why were you talking the other way when I first saw you? Experience has taught me that many men resent a Chinese who does not talk the way they expect him to. I wish to avoid trouble. Uh, Chen's on his way to China, Matt. He's going home so he can save up enough money for his passage. Oh, is that right? Well, I wish you luck, Chen. Thank you, Marshal. I must get back to work now. Good day, gentlemen. <laughs> so long, Chen. So long. Ah, yeah. He's a nice fellow, isn't he? Yeah, he is, Doc. You know, I believe him about being broke, too. Oh, why shouldn't you? Well, haven't you heard? Heard what? Why, that Pless Braden and Howard Rabb. They've been saying Chen's got lots of money. They say he keeps it hid in that little box of his. Huh? No, I hadn't heard that, Doc. Well, I don't believe a word of it. I think he's broke, just like he says. Well, it doesn't matter much. Why, what do you mean? Well, that kind of talk going around, he's going to be in trouble. There are men besides Braden and Rab who'd murder Chen for his money and not even think it was a crime. Yes, I suppose you're right, Matt. I'd better go have a talk to Chen, Doc. 
I'll see you later. I had a talk with Chen. Try to get him to put his box in the bank and then let everybody know that he'd done so. But he said he wanted the box near him and that he'd keep it hidden in his room. I couldn't argue him out of it, and I knew there'd be trouble. And sure enough, a couple of days later, it happened. Though not the way I'd expected. It was noon, and Chester and I were headed for the Dodge house to have a little dinner. Mr. Dillon, you know what old Teeters has went and done? No, what, Chester? He has started charging 30 cents for a haircut. Oh? Now, can't something be done about that? <laughs> well, I can think of one thing, Chester. What's that? Let your hair grow. Oh, hello, Marshal. Hello, John. Let my hair grow and look like a buffalo hunter? Hey, the restaurant looks mighty deserted, Mr. Dillon. Well, maybe it's closed today. Let's find out. Mm. There's Mr. Green. Hello, Green. You closed today? Hello, Marshal. Chester. Hello, Mr. Green. I'm closed, Marshal. I haven't got a cook... What? Chen. He won't cook today. I don't know what's the matter with him. He won't even talk. Well, where is he? Sitting in his room back there on the floor. Just sitting there and staring at his hands. Well, maybe he's sick. No, he isn't sick. But there's something wrong with him. Maybe you can find out what it is, Marshal. He might talk to you. Okay, I'll try. Uh, you better stay here, Chester. All right. It's the storeroom right off the kitchen, Marshal. Door's open. Yeah, okay, I'll find it. Thanks. Hello, Chen. Hello, Marshal. Uh, can I come in? I'd like to talk to you. Come in. What's the matter, Chen? Are you sick? No. Uh, tell me something, Chen. What, Marshal? Do you consider me a friend? I believe you are. Good. Well, then maybe you'll let me help you. In what way? Well, I don't know. You're going to have to tell me what's wrong first. It would be difficult for you to understand, Marshal. Well, maybe, but tell me anyway. I am Chinese, Marshal. I have lived many years in America, but I am still... Chinese. Yeah. But go on. Years ago, my country was overrun by a tribe of Tatars called the Manchus. As they took each city, they required the inhabitants to shave around their heads, leaving only a long strand of hair to be braided into a queue. It was a sign of subjugation, but that has been forgotten, and now the queue, or pigtail as you call it, is of great importance to us. Wait a minute, Chen. I just noticed. Where's yours? To lose the queue is a great disgrace to us, Marshal. Yeah, I've heard that. Well, who did it, Chen? Two men. The same two. Brayden and Rab? They came here last night. They wanted my treasure box. You wouldn't tell them where it is, so they cut off your pigtail, is that it? They took it away with them, Marshal. That makes my disgrace even worse. Ah. Ken, I think maybe I understand how you feel about this. Uh, would it help any if I get it back for you? I am a peaceful man, Marshal. 
But if I do not get it back, I must kill those two. No. No, now don't you go killing anybody. You let me handle this, huh? I'm very sorry, Marshal, for all the trouble. Uh, uh, you wait here, Chen. I'll see what I can do. Find them, Chester? Yes, sir. They're in there, Mr. Dillon. Standing over at the bar. Good. Place is about empty except for Braden and Rab. Are they drunk? I don't know. I didn't talk to them. There they are. Yeah. Well, it ain't Marshal Dillon. Hey, you gonna buy us a drink? Hey, yeah, Marshal. I thought I told your men to stay away from Chen Wong. Chen Wong? Well, now what's he yelling about? His pigtail. He wants it back. I don't know what you're talking about, Marshal. We ain't seen Chen since the day he first come here. You went to his room last night, didn't you, and cut off his pigtail when he wouldn't tell you where his treasure box no, was? No, he didn't, Marshal. I don't even know where his room is. Chen's been lying to you, Marshal. All them heathen foreigners is liars. I want that pigtail, Rad. Now, where is it? I don't know nothing about it, I tell you. What are you standing up for him for? He ain't even a citizen. I don't care what he is. I'm standing up for him. Well, it wasn't us. Honest, Marshal, we didn't do it. Well, maybe I ought to beat the truth out of you, huh? We're telling you the truth now, Marshal. I don't believe you. Now you get that pigtail back to Chen or you're in trouble. What do you mean, trouble? You'll find out when it's too late. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. I went back to Chen and tried to explain things to him. He didn't say much, but I could see that his mind was made up. And so I told him what had happened if he killed anybody. But that didn't bother him. He said he'd kill himself when it was over. And then I got mad at him for being so stubborn. And I was sorry for it right away. I guess he figured I didn't understand after all. So I left him feeling pretty helpless. Well, that night he made his first move. I found out about it at the Texas Trail where I dropped in to say hello to Kitty. Oh, it sure has been a long day, Matt. I'm worn out and I got the whole night ahead of me yet. Oh, what happened today, Kitty? Oh, Sam over there got the bright idea of offering every other drink on the house to any soldier that walked in here. <laughs> well, that's one way of keeping this saloon full. <laughs> sure is. If he goes on, I might as well move out to Fort Dodge and join the Army. I think it'd be easier. You know something? I think they'd be glad to have you, Kitty. I mean as a soldier. Hey, that's an idea. Lady soldiers. There are darn few jobs women couldn't do. Anywhere. Marshal Dillon? Marshal? What's on your mind, Rap? That, uh, a Chinaman, that's what. He's haunting us, me and Braden. And if he don't stop it, I'm, I'm going to put a bullet in him. What do you mean he's haunting you? Well, all afternoon he's been following us. Wherever we go, he just stands around staring at us. Drives a man crazy after a while. I'm warning you, Marshal. I'm going to shoot him. Good. And I can come to your hanging. What's the matter with her anyway? Rab, I told you before to give Chen back his pigtail. He won't bother you if you do. You still believe him, don't you, Marshal? Yeah, I believe him. 
It's a fine thing when the U.S. Marshal takes the word of a stinking, dirty little... Shut up! Get out of here, Rap. Go on. All right. I'm going. Matt, you better do something about that. I'll kill Jen, sure. Unless he kills him first, Kitty. And I'll go tell Chester to keep an eye on him. I'll see you later. Sure. I sure am sorry, Mr. Dillon. Where did you lose them, Chester? Well, sir, they was in the Alphaganza having a drink, and I was watching them like you told me. Then a fellow come up to me, and we started talking, and next time I looked, they was gone. All three of them. So I come after you. I will find them. Yes, sir, I sure do hope so. Ken was carrying his little box, Mr. Dillon, right under his arm, and he... Hey, look over there. What? What's everybody crowding up the alley for? Well, let's go see. Oh, All right, fellas, let the marshal through here now. Stand back, everybody. Quiet, stand back. Mr. Dillon, it's Chan. Yeah. He's been strangled, Chester. Strangled? With his pigtail. Yeah, they gave it back to him, all right. Hey, look there. Knife. It's got blood all over it, too. Yeah, give it to me. It's a butcher knife. Chen must have cut one of them. Maybe both. Uh, that'll make it easier to track them. Yeah. How do you men stay here? I don't want anybody following us. You understand? All right, come on, Chester. Yes, sir. Easy now. They may be waiting for us. Yes, sir. There's something laying over there by that rain barrel. Huh? It's a man. Yeah. That's Howard Rabb, Chester. Looks like Chen cut him up pretty bad. Is he dead? Yeah, he's dead. Well, now let's find Braden. Go on back, Marshal. You ain't gonna take me. He's out by that shed there, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Now, look, you stay here, Chester, and keep down. I'm gonna crawl up to where I can see him. I'll yell at him a little to keep his attention. Okay. You ain't got a chance, Braden. Shooting, Braden. You must be awful scared. 
Did Ken get his knife into you, too? You stand up, Chester. I'll be happy to kill you. All right, drop your gun, Braden. No, no. Okay, Chester. Did you kill him? Yeah, I killed him. Well, sir, I guess you had to. Uh, there's Chen's treasure box, Chester. Pick it up, will you? Here it is, sir. I guess that's what they killed him for. Must be full of money after all. Here, let's take a look. Yes, sir, by golly, it is money. Yeah, this much is money, Chester. Four dollars. Four dollars? Is that all? Yeah, that's all. What's that other paper? Uh, strike a match, Chester, will you? Hold it over here. Uh-huh. Oh, looks like kind of a document, don't it? What's it say? Well, I can't see it very well. Uh, something about Chen Lang Wong was of invaluable service, intelligence, General McClellan's Army of the Potomac, Peninsular Campaign, March 1862. Uh. Recognition. Something, something, something. Chen Lang Wong is hereby granted full citizenship of the United States. Signed Ulysses S. Grant, President. Well, I'll be doggone. Yeah, it looks like Chen wasn't exactly a foreigner after all, doesn't it? Poor little fellow. Chester. Yes, sir. I'm going to take this letter out to Colonel Mast at Fort Dodge. I, uh, I got an idea he might want to give Chen Wong a military burial. Oh, that'd be fine. And while I'm gone, you can drag these other two off and throw them in a hole on Boot Hill. Transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Edgar Barrier, Lawrence Dobkin, Paul Dubov, and John Daner. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This is the CBS Radio Network. The Q, a Gunsmoke episode from the summer of 1954 
and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey is our co-producer, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at WAMU.org or follow us on Twitter at WAMU885. And we encourage you to visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Okay, get ready for one of the oddest Dragnet episodes we've ever played. And I guess it's fitting because much of it's taken up with the reading of a piece by the very popular writer O.O. McIntyre, whose middle name was odd. Like most Broadway guys, Mr. McIntyre wasn't from New York. He grew up in Gallipolis, Ohio. We'll post a link to a recent profile of him in his hometown newspaper, the Gallipolis Daily Tribune. From November 16, 1954 and NBC, it's a case called The Big Dog from Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. An elderly man is threatening an entire neighborhood with a shotgun. He says he's going to use it to kill a man. Your job, take it away from him. It was Tuesday, June 15th. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith, the boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. We're on our way out from the office. It was 11.46 a.m. when we got to Unit 1F14. The police car standing by. Hi, Joe. Lloyd, what do you got? Take a look at the sign. Yeah. I will not live in the same neighborhood with a dog poisoner. Looks like he painted it himself. And there's we can figure he did. How'd you get the complaint? Came in, see the man. When we got here, the guy was sitting up there with his shotgun. Told us to leave him alone. We figured maybe you'd be a little better equipped to handle it. Well, it might not work out that way, but we'll give it a try. Anything we can do to help out? Just be here, right? right. You make a move for a gun, and I'll have to kill you. Want to tell us why you're doing this? My business. Well, that gun makes it ours. You think that if you want to, it doesn't make any difference to me. I didn't ask you out here. Yeah, well, now that we made the trip, don't you figure you ought to tell us? No. Something to do with that sign? Might have, yeah. Well, you better tell us about it. I don't see how it's going to help. You won't know unless you try, will you? All right. I'll tell you what. You come up here by the porch. We'll talk. Make it slow. Don't try to be smart. I could hit both of you with one shot from here. Yeah. Might not kill you, but it'd make you pretty sick. That's good. Hold it right there. Now, just stand still. All right, you want to tell us what this is all about? My dog. Had her 14 years, and somebody killed her. Well, that's not much of a reason to sit out here and threaten everybody who walks by your house, is it? It is for me. Why? But I know that they'll show up. Who will show up? Whoever done it. They'll walk down the street, and when they do, I'm going to get them. Well, you know we're not going to let you do that. I don't see that there's much you can do to stop me. If you know who killed your dog, why don't you come downtown and make a complaint like you should? Evidence. What's that? I've got to have evidence. Yeah, well, you must have a lot of it to be ready to kill a man. Well, we'll see. Who do you think poisoned your dog? I don't know, but he'll be by. Anybody else live in that house with you? No. 
There's nobody inside, huh? I told you there ain't nobody. Used to be Queenie, but not now. This is a picture of her. Beautiful. I'm going to tell you something, old-timer. What? You can sit there and think you got this thing under control, but you haven't. Is that right? Yes, sir. Maybe you'd better take another look. I've got the gun. Yeah, well, it might be that way. But there's a hundred more that are going to keep you from committing a murder out here. That's a hard word to use, isn't it? No, because that's what you're figuring to do, isn't it? How do you think you're going to stop me? You bring that gun up in the firing position and I'll show you how I'm going to stop you. All I'm trying to do is to pay back something. I don't want to hurt anybody else. Look, mister, why don't you tell us who you think poisoned your dog and why? We might be able to do something for you. Because I don't think it'd help. Well, why don't you give it a try? It was poisoned. I saw her come home. I saw her crawl right up that wall on her stomach, dragging her hind legs. Yeah. Oh, you wouldn't understand what she meant to me. She was like a person. Someone to talk to. She was a she was a lot of company. <clears throat> this book here. Written by a man who knew. He understood. Yeah, well, all that may be fine, but you got no right to sit out here with that shotgun. This man knew about dogs. Odd McIntyre. Who's that, sir? Oh, old McIntyre? I want you to listen. This will explain just what I'm doing here. Hold it. Hold it right there. I'll drop this book and kill you. Now, I want you to listen to this. I want you to listen carefully. Brothers and sisters, I bid you beware of giving your hearts to a dog to tear. So wrote Kipling in an excellent elegiac. I happen to be a dog lover who does not believe in that warning. Eight of the happiest years of my life was spent in the almost constant companionship of a devoted dog. When he was taken from me, cruelly but with merciful swiftness, it was a terrific heart wrench. For two days, I grieved inconsolably. For weeks, I walked the streets at night trying to get hold of myself. Yet now, when time has dulled the pain, I can truthfully say that the joy and understanding my dog brought into my life more than compensated for the sorrow of his passing. For my dog taught me many things as enduring as the ages. Outside of the divine relationship and the human, I know of no influence so ennobling as our relationship with a dog. My dog's name was Junior. He was a Boston Bulldog, weighing 24 pounds, with a blazing muzzle, white collar, and feet tipped with white. His coat was the glossy brown of an autumn leaf. He had a lovable lock ear that perked with quizzical abandon. He was full of joyous life and never, never outgrew his prankishness. 
I picked him up in the Fifth Avenue dog shop in much the same manner that one buys a trinket. I thought he was cute looking. He was then four weeks old and uh, trotted sideways with mock seriousness. I took him home in my overcoat pocket. From that day on, for eight years, he played a big part in my life. He came to understand me better than most of my human associates did. He knew his time for play and my time for work. He did not trespass. His only illness displayed the heroic courage that characterized him until his death. One evening, his mistress and I came home after the theater. And when we opened the door, we missed his welcoming rush and bark. We found him lying on the floor of the bathroom in a pool of blood. When I bent over him, there was a feeble thump of his tail as much as to say, Don't worry. His eyes were glazing and I knew that he was in a desperate state. We worked over him several hours and finally, in a wobbly manner, he stood up. Walked unsteadily to the bedroom and picked up his play ball as if to say, you see, I'm all right. In a half hour, he had another hemorrhage. With uncanny instinct, he rushed into the tile bathroom so as not to injure the carpet. Fortunately, he recovered quickly from his attack and in two days seemed as well as ever. Dogs are unerring in reflecting the characters of their masters and mistresses. To Junior, I represented the play spirit. The wrong and flapdoodle. Well, he was somewhat of a roughneck in his relations with me. But with his mistress, he was always gentle and careful. One of the important lessons Junior taught me was to have more faith in my fellow beings. I had for years knocked about as a newspaper reporter and had acquired that veneer of cynicism that is typical of the craft. I'd rather smart-alecky attitude of having to be shown. <clears throat> now, I am the average human being, as likely to err as the rest. But I found that with Junior, because of his implicit faith in me, I never attempted trickery. I could not bear to abuse that rare confidence. And this set me to thinking that if we humans displayed the same faith in our fellows, we should be less likely to have that confidence abused. I come to the final chapter of Junior's life with tears that are shed unashamed. As I have said, he was my constant companion for eight happy years. My longest absence from him was when I was in Europe, where the quarantine regulations are so strict that it is quite unfair and selfish to take a dog there. Junior, like all good dogs, was faithful to the end. He died obeying my command which made his loss all the more tragic to me. I left him after his evening romp and was away until shortly after midnight. Upon my return, his greeting was, it seemed to me, especially joyous. 
It was so joyous, in fact, that it indirectly led to his death. Shortly before I arrived, the servant had taken him out for a walk. But he was so glad to see me, and he loved so to go out late at night without a muzzle or a leash on, that I humored him, and uh, we went out again together. Uh, at that hour, there was very little traffic on Fifth Avenue, and Junior ran far ahead of me. He had been trained to wait at curbings when unleashed until he received the command, go. Then he would race across the street like a flash. At the corner of 44th Street and 5th Avenue, I stepped to the curb, looked both ways for signs of traffic, and seeing none, shouted, go. Junior was off at a bound. At that instant, a party of reckless joyriders in a heavy touring car swung madly around the corner, and both wheels on one side passed over his body. There was a jeer of derision as the car shot north with the taillights gleaming red in the night. Junior staggered to his feet. And as I lifted him in my arms, he looked up with his soft, pleading eyes, begging for the help I could not give. Hailing a taxi cab, I hurried to my hotel a few blocks away. But before I reached there, he had died without even a whimper of pain. He lies buried today in the picturesque little dog cemetery on the sloping hills of Hartsdale, New York. Above him are the green grass, the whispering trees, and a stone carved with this inscription, Junior, faithful to the end. You're expecting him, are you? You'll be by. This is going to be something different for you two. How's that? You won't have to look for the man who kills him. Friday, see you a minute. Yeah, Lloyd. What do you got? We checked the old man through R9. Did you find anything we can use? No, no record. How about the neighborhood? Uh, Perkins and Henry checked, talked to the people on the street. Well... The news we can find out he's pretty near a hermit doesn't have much to do with anybody. No close friends? No, none that anybody knows about. He gets one piece of mail a month, evidently some kind of check. Mm-hmm. We talked to the manager at the grocery down the street. Collins does all the shopping there. What do you have to say about that check? It's from an insurance company, some kind of annuity. Anything else? No, rest of the book's empty. Uh-huh. Now, where do we go from here? Find some way to get that gun away from him. Any ideas? Well, if we could find the poisoner, it might give us a break. If there is a poisoner. No, Lloyd, I believe him. Anyway, it won't do any harm to shake the neighborhood. If we pick the guy up, maybe the old man will settle down. It's a big job. Yeah, well, that's a big gun. 12.07 p.m. We contacted the office and made arrangements for additional cars to start a thorough search of the area. It was just an outside chance that the dog poisoner might still be in the neighborhood somewhere. The crowd on the sidewalk had gotten larger and the uniformed officers were having trouble keeping order. While I was talking to the office, a middle-aged woman broke through the lines and ran toward the porch and Peter Collins. Hey, 
Pete, Collins. All right, hold it right there, lady. He's a friend of mine. Yeah, well, he won't be if he pulls the trigger on that gun. What are you trying to do, Pete Collins? What? What are you doing to our street? I don't know what you mean. We were all sorry when Queenie died. Wasn't anybody on the street didn't want to do something. That's nice of you. You sit here with that gun, trying to turn this street into a shooting gallery, and, and none of us are with you. You know why I'm doing it. That don't make it right. We had a meeting last night. All the people in the neighborhood tried to think what to do about getting you another dog. I don't want no other dog. Grow up. Put that gun away and grow up. You get out of here right now. You get out of here and tell your friends that I don't need them. None of them. You go tell them that, will you? All right, come on, lady, over here. Joe? Yeah. Just talk to the officer, sending out more men, gas guns. Anything on the poison? No, still looking. Lady, what do you know about him? Oh, he lived next door for 16 years. You live alone all that time? Yeah. I think he was married before he moved here. Yeah. All he had was that old dog. Just the two of them. Do you have any idea who might have poisoned the dog? We'd all like the answer to that one. Ma'am? Queenie's not the first one. There's been 13 others. Hardly a dog on the block that hasn't gotten sick. We've done about everything we could. It isn't easy. What do you mean? The way the law is. What? We checked into it. You did, huh? The way the law reads, in order to prove poisoning, you've got to see the person throw the bait. Yeah. There's none of us got time to sit around the back fence and watch people walking down the alley. Mm-hmm. But even if you do see the person throw the bait, you can't just go in and arrest them. All right. The law says you've got to have part of the bait. Well, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Makes it almost impossible. You've been to the authorities, have you? Yeah. SPCA, police. They've all done what they could. Dogs keep right on dying. We've even thought of maybe hiring somebody on our own. You know, sort of a special cop. Yeah. It seems a shame, don't it? Ma'am? Poor old man. How could anybody get low enough to poison his dog? That's what he wants to know. Joe. Yeah. You better leave, lady. Oh, yeah. There's nothing more I can do here. Yeah, what do you got? Well, this man here, his name's Bentley Mocker. Yeah. Uniformed men picked him up in an alley a couple of blocks from here, throwing this over the back fences. Meat, huh? Yeah. Medium? That's the man? That's the man who poisoned Queen? All right, put that gun down, Collins. I'm going to kill him. How about it, Joe? Collins, put it down. Oh, stand clear. Better get these people out of here. Right. What are we going to do? No choice now. Yeah. We got to shoot him. Twelve twenty-four p.m. In spite of the precautions, it began to look as if we wouldn't be able to take Collins' gun away from him without physical violence. As he raised the shotgun, cocked it, and pointed it at Bentley Marker, all of the other officers in the vicinity were ready to stop him. Collins, you use that gun, and I'm going to use mine. Put it down. I'll shoot through you to get to it. Yes, sir, you're going to have to. What's going on here? You got the right to do this to me? How about it? Did you poison his dog? He's crazy. He'll kill me if he gets a chance. Just answer me. Did you poison his dog? What if I did? Answer the question, mister. All right, I did. I poisoned him. You've been dropping poison meat all over this neighborhood, haven't you? There ain't anything you can do about it. Fourteen dogs killed around here. Did you do it? Pets. That's all they are. Good riddance. That's the way it looks to you, does it? Sure. Rooting around the yards, barking and yowling. No good any of them. You all through? I could go on for hours about them. 
Had my way, I'd get rid of them all. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Those dogs meant a lot to the people who lost them. That old man sitting up there on the porch, to him, that dog was part of his life. What gives you the right to sneak around back alleys and side yards and kill off a pet that belongs to a child or an old man? I don't have to stand around here and listen to you. No, sir, you don't. Lloyd? Yeah, Joe. Take him downtown. What for? You got no law to hold me? Yeah, well, maybe we can find one. In the way you talk, you think dogs are better than humans. In your case, they are. Come on, let's go. Frank. Yeah. Tell him to stand by with the gas. Yeah. No other way, huh? Well, I'll make one more try. Right. I'll bring up the heavy stuff. All right, Collins, it's all over now. I'm going to tell you once more. Put that gun down. Until I get one chance at that poisoner. He's gone. He's downtown. Now, this is the last time. Put it down. I don't care anymore. It's up to you. We've done all we can. That man ought to die. Put the gun down. I don't care anymore. I'd just as soon shoot you. Collins, it's all over. Now, put that gun down or we'll take it away from you. Joe. Joe. Yeah, take a look. What's the kid want here? Well, look. Note, pen to his coat. Policeman, maybe this will help. Anyway, read it. Did you read this? Yeah. Well, we'll give it a try. Collins, the boy here wants to see you. I don't want to talk to anybody. You might want to see him. Who is it? What's your name, sir? Davy. Davy. Oh, I know him. It's okay. Let him come up. Not as long as you got that gun. Now, how about it? All right. Break it. Take the shells out. Now, toss them down there on the lawn. Now, let that gun slide down the porch steps. Come on. All right, son. Come ahead. Davy? What'd you want to see me about? Ma said I should give you this note. What's in it? Well, now, the quickest way to find that out is to read it, isn't it? Huh. <clears throat> My dear Mr. Collins, as you well know, all of your neighbors are dreadfully sorry you lost your queenie. I know this one may never take her place, but please give her the chance. Oh, yes. It's a little girl. Your neighbor is his Tom Evans. You want to see the puppy? Mm, well, come on, son. Let's unzip your jacket here. Here. Okay. There you are. It's a little girl. Just a puppy. That's right. Yeah. Queenie's collar doesn't fit too good. Mm-hmm. Think I'll have to get another one. No, I wouldn't worry about that. Huh? She'll grow into that one. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On July 12th, trial was held in Division 68, Municipal Court, Los Angeles Judicial District.
Peter Lawrence Collins pled guilty to violation of Section 417 PC, drawing or exhibiting firearms, one count. Extenuating circumstances and lack of a prior record led the court to be lenient. The suspect was placed on probation for a period of three years. Bentley Jones Mocker was tried and convicted of Section 596 PC, unauthorized animal poisoning, and received sentence as prescribed by law. Violation of Section 596 PC is punishable by imprisonment in a county jail for a period not to exceed six months, or a fine of not more than $500, or both such fine and imprisonment. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful to the McNaught Syndicate Incorporated for granting permission to read excerpts from O.O. McIntyre's article entitled, What My Dog Taught Me. You have just heard Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action, and starring Jack Webb, a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. McIntyre piece, What My Dog Taught Me, was anthologized in a book called 25 Selected Stories of O.O. McIntyre. You heard a long excerpt of it in that Dragnet episode, The Big Dog, from the autumn of 1954. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're honoring a couple of birthday boys tonight, performing artists who deserve to be remembered frequently. One of them is actually very well remembered for one special performance. Ray Bolger was a great Broadway star who also made his mark in the movies, on television, and, as we're about to hear, on radio. He's one of the greatest song and dance men of all time, and he danced, sang, and acted his way into American cultural history with his performances as the cowhand Hunk and Hunk's alter ego, the Scarecrow, in the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. We'll hear Mr. Bolger recreate one of his Broadway triumphs later on tonight, and right now, we'll hear him on a radio show, along with his Wizard of Oz co-stars, Judy Garland and Burt Lahr, with the show's host, Robert Young, subbing for Tin Man Jack Haley. The program was part of a series, a collaboration between the NBC Network and the MGM Movie Studio. It was great promotion for MGM's films, and in fact, this performance came two months before The Wizard of Oz was released. So it's the first public performance of that glorious Harold Arlen, E.Y. Harburg song score, accompanied by Meredith Wilson and his orchestra. You'll hear the term eccentric dancer. It's one of the many styles Ray Bolger had mastered, a kind of crazy legs, mostly comic kind of dancing that you see him do as the Scarecrow. From the 29th of June, 1939, and introduced by Mervyn Leroy, the movie producer of The Wizard of Oz, it's an excerpt of NBC's Good News of 1939. Dorothy wends her way through the enchanted forest and finds some very interesting companions indeed who join her on the amazing journey to Oz. First, she meets the Scarecrow, played by Ray Bolger. Then, the Tin Man, played by Jack Haley, and finally, the Cowardly Lion, played by Bert Lahr. Each of her friends, Dorothy finds, has his troubles, and all hope that the mighty wizard will solve them. But suppose we let them speak, or rather, sing for themselves. First, 
Ray Bolger as the straw man. I could while away the hours Conferring with the flowers Consulting with the rain And my head I'd be scratching While my thoughts were busy hatching If I only had a brain I'd unravel every riddle For any individual In trouble or in pain With the thoughts you'd be thinking You could be another Lincoln If you only had a brain Oh, I could tell you why The ocean's near the shore I could think of things I never thought before And then I'd sit and think some more I would not be just a nothing My head all full of stuffing My heart all full of pain And perhaps I'd deserve you And be even worthy of you If I only had a brain now, Bob Young doubling for Jack Haley as a tin woodman. When a man's an empty kettle, he should be on his metal, and yet I'm torn apart. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. I would register emotion, jealousy, devotion, and really feel the part. I would stay young and chipper, and I'd lock it with a zipper, if I only had a heart. Now, Bert Lauer is the cowardly lion. Gee, it's sad, believe me, Missy, when you're born to be a city without the women boy. But I could show my prowess, be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. I'm afraid there's no denying, I'm just a dandelion, a fate I don't deserve. I'd be brave as a blizzard, I'd be gentle as a lizard, I'd be clever as a gizzard, if the wizard is a wizard who will serve. Then I'm sure to get a brain, a heart, a home, the name. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest this evening at our party. A man who has a special and unique reason for being at any celebration connected with the Wizard of Oz. Because 35 years ago, he and his famous partner were the stars of the original Broadway production of The Wizard. You've all heard of the team of Montgomery and Stone, and I know you'll join me in saluting Fred Stone here tonight. Fred, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you very much, Bob. Fred, there's one fellow here tonight you certainly ought to meet, and that's the man who plays your original part in the picture, the straw man. That's the role you created, isn't it? That's right, the straw man, Bob. Well, I want you to shake hands with Ray Bolger, the straw man in the picture. Ray, this is Fred Stone. <laughs> Fred Stone? Oh, Mr. Stone, I've always considered you the greatest eccentric dancer that ever lived. Well, thank you, Ray. I sincerely consider you the finest eccentric dancer of the present time. In fact, I can truthfully say 
You're the man I'd have chosen to play the part of the straw man myself. Oh, gosh, that, that means a lot coming from you. Well, we thought we had a grand production in The Wizard. Uh, it was pretty good, too, in 1904. Uh, it was, uh, of course, you know, in those days, in those yes, days, uh, it was all right. 1904. Gosh, Mr. Stone, why, that was the year I was born. You don't say. Well, young man, I'm thrilled to meet you. Here, so many years later. No, I'm the one that's thrilled. I remember when you came to Boston at the Colonial Theater in your great show, uh, Jack-O-Lantern, which, by the way, was the first show that I was ever allowed to see. And your wonderful performance on that show gave me my inspiration to be an actor, you know. <laughs> well, Ray, you've done a pretty good job for yourself. I wish I could think of an answer, Mr. Stone. That's all right, son. The straw man is supposed to think. He never had a brain. <laughs> Say, am I supposed to take that as a compliment? Certainly, my boy. From now on, I'll always think of Ray Budger as a straw man. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. That excerpt of good news comes from the early summer of 1939, when many in the audience would have well remembered Fred Stone's performance as the straw man, the scarecrow, in the stage production of The Wizard of Oz that was a smash on Broadway and toured the country for nearly ten years. And we'll hear more from Ray Bolger later tonight here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And you're listening to WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. We mentioned earlier tonight that Francis X. Bushman born on this date in 1883, was able to do what few big silent screen stars could. He made a new career for himself on radio, in addition to some film work and later success on television. We have two examples of his work this hour, a drama and a comedy. First, a noir detective story starring Bob Bailey in his early role as George Valentine. Mr. Bushman plays the head of a tunnel-digging company, a Mr. Kane. The episode's called Under the River, and it comes from May 3, 1948, the Mutual Don Lee Network, and the series Let George Do It. Standard of California, on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West, invite you to Let George Do It. Another adventure of George Valentine. Personal notice. Danger is my stock and trade. If you're up against something over your head and need help that's strictly confidential, you got a job for me, George Valentine. Write full details. Mr. Valentine, let's see if you're as good as your ad says. I am up against something that's over my head. A river. The river my company's trying to push a tunnel under. But we're getting nowhere fast. And I hate to think what the reason would be. If you figure you can help... If you figure you can be of help, I assure you we won't haggle about price. Hmm. It's signed, uh, William Kane, President. Kane and Bowers Tunnel Construction, huh? Now, I wonder where I could find a diving suit with a new look. <laughs> now, seriously, Brooksy, you must mean the West End Tunnel, the one they're having all the trouble with breakthroughs and cave-ins. I could drop in at the Globe Department Store. Okay, Angel, okay. 
But this seems like a job for an engineer, not for me. Well, there's still no harm in talking to the nice man who insists he's not going to haggle about price. Well, as long as you insist on being mercenary, let's get going. Valentine, you don't know how much it means to a former sand hog like me to wind up building his own tunnel. I think I can imagine, Mr. Kane. It's like a kid with a chemistry set suddenly finding out he's discovered the atomic bomb. <laughs> I realize this tunnel project's a pretty big thing. And you've had more than your share of hard luck. Yeah, way more than my share. What did you mean in your letter that you hate to think what the reason for these accidents might be? Well? I, I suppose I've got to tell you. Oh, now look, Kane, if it comes that hard, maybe you want this letter back so we can forget the whole thing. No, no, it's just that it's tough putting it into words. Yeah? Yeah. Me and my partner, Jim Bowers, we drove tunnel all over the world. Started as muckers. Shoveling mud and slime. Got to be miners together. Using dynamite and drills when you didn't even know what was going to happen next under the river. You'd think you'd get to know a guy after going through all that with him. Well, let's be blunt and put it this way, Kane. You suspect your partner, Bowers, is holding up the works here, is that it? Yeah, but I gotta be sure. What makes you suspect him at all? I found out that the company we outbid to get this job made Jim a big offer to come with them. But if he's a partner here, what's the percentage for him in a deal like that? Well, Jim's always resented that I'm better suited to run the front office up here while he has to work with the men. Oh, I get it. So if he could botch up this job, we lost it to the Cameron Construction Company. They'd take him in there as a big shot. Well, you certainly must have talked this over with Mr. Bowers. Yeah, I did miss, and he said that he turned the Cameron offer down flat. But how can I be sure? Now all these accidents. With Bowers always on the spot to make them happen, if that's what he wanted. Uh, frankly, Valentine, I don't even know how you can help me. Sand hogs are a clannish crowd. You can't go wandering around down that tunnel snooping around. Well, Mr. Kane, suppose you let me give it some thought. Uh, George. Yeah, Brooksy. How'd you like to buy a Princeton? Okay, Bruxy, I'll buy. Well, for instance, if you were a reporter and I were a photographer, we could be doing a story for a national magazine. That would get us down into the tunnel to snoop. Say, that might be an idea, that. Then you could look around. I'll tell Sanders to expect Oh, now, wait a minute. Hey, look, Bruxy, that's a good for instance, all right. But this business of we... Of course I meant we. Why do you think I came up with the idea? Okay, okay, you arrange it, Kane. I think we're going to take a crack at it. Well, just how far down does this elevator go, Mr. Sanders? Uh, about 30 feet, miss. Oh, well, that's not too bad, is it, George? Oh, no, no. Oh, that part of it's all right. I'm thinking of what happens later. What are you so smug about? What do you know that I don't know? Hey, you want to tell the lady what happens next, mister? Well, miss, it's getting into the tunnel that you've got to worry about. Oh? There'll be about 40 pounds of pressure per square inch on you down there. That's why when we get to the bottom, you still got to sit a half hour in the manlock. Manlock? What's that? Oh, it's kind of a sealed-up room, miss. We keep shooting pressure into that while you just sit. That's so it ain't so bad for you when you get into the tunnel. Get it? <sighs> I got it. To put it more concisely, my sweet, unless they're very, very careful, the pressure of the river would come down on you and flatten you out like a jellyfish. Oh, lovely thought. Well, here we are. 
Hey, Charlie, come here. We got visitors. A reporter and a young lady to take pictures. Oh, visitors, huh? Yeah, it's okay. Mr. Kane knows about it. Mm. In that case, I'd better sit in the lock with them. Yeah, you better warn the boys. Put their shirts on, Charlie. <laughs> Ladies' day. Mm. Right here, folks. Okay. All right, step in. Thank you. Hey, looks like a bank vault. Yeah, almost. Important thing is to seal it airtight. You'll see what I mean when I close this door. George, what's that? Huh? That's the air from the tunnel coming in through this valve, lady. When the pressure in here is the same as it is out there, that big door opens by itself. Then you're ready to go on to the river. Hmm. Won't you sit down, Miss Brooks? Yeah, it usually takes about a half hour. Oh. Yeah, just about a minute more now. You all right, Brooksy? Oh. Well, I, I'm just swell. But my ears... It's even worse coming out. You're in too much of a hurry. That's when you can get the chokes and the bends. <laughs> Nothing like having things to look forward to. You'll have to put these little metal tags around your neck. Huh? What are these, Charlie? All sand hogs wear them. It's in case you're found staggering around. Tells the cops not to throw you in with the drunks, but to rush you back here to this decompression chamber. They don't waste much time, you'll probably live. Oh, goody. Hey, you sound like an old sandhog yourself, Charlie. You can't stay away from tunnels, huh? Old, Mr. Valentine? I'm just like Jack Benny. I'm still 38. <laughs> <laughs> I was the same age when I helped build the Holland Tunnel back east. Just got out here a few months ago. Well, that's that. There goes the door. It's okay for you to go into the tunnel now. All right. Uh, Come on, Brooksy. Oh, oh, it's like the inside of a furnace in here. But there's all this nice water to slush through. Golly. That ought to help keep cool things off. <coughs> George. Hey, you can still put your bank in there with Charlie. Oh, no. I was just thinking of my nylons. Let's go. Okay, everybody clear. We're blasting. Blasting, George. Hold it, Hagen. All right, let us go. Well, that was good. Now we can go up to the other. Hey, where'd you two come from? You Bowers? Yeah, what are you doing down here? And with a girl to bring me more trouble. Trouble? Look, Mr. Kane said it was all right for me to do a story about the tunnel. The young lady is here to take the pictures. Story? That all Kane's got to think of up there? I'd like to go up and tell him a few hey, things. Powers, hey, what's going on? Powers, George. Yeah. Got a breakthrough at the tunnel head. What? Yes. Bad this time. The scaffolding came down with a lot of guys on it. Ah, uh, scaffolding come down on every job. Young Davis is down there, caught under all that rock and sand. We got to get him out. I'll get the ambulance, Hagen. But you get back there. That's up that break. Go on. Davis wouldn't be there now, Bars. If you set that gang up tunnel far enough when the blast come off... Look, Sandhog, don't tell me how to build a tunnel. I'll tell you anything I want. Okay, if you want to play... Ah, pick yourself up and do what I said. Okay, reporter, there's a story. How we lost another day. Yeah, what about the man you just lost? This is one accident they won't blame on me. 
Her woman in the tunnel's the worst jinx there is. Kane knows that. Well, I got to phone upstairs for an ambulance. Well, I see the two partners are working late tonight. That's good. Oh, Valentine. To get a good story out of that accident today? Now, look, let's stop kidding each other. You know I'm not a reporter, Bowers. I wasn't born yesterday. I know Kane had you checking on me. Why shouldn't I? Huh. You know we can't go on much longer this way, and you're in charge. A little bribe from the Cameron Company, and you... Another crack like that, and I'll Okay, you. break it up, boys. Break it up. Let me do some talking. What I have to say will be short and to the point. Yeah. Yeah. I did some checking today. Bowers isn't the only one who might profit by these accidents. You could, too, Kane. Huh? What are you talking about? Ah, let's hear some more. I had a talk with a city engineer. He said he doesn't know how you can do this job on the bid you put in. I, uh, well, I admit I was figuring close to the line, but we would have made it if things went right. Ah, so the boy in the stiff shirt comes up with another bad deal, huh? And, Kane, you had the foresight to take out insurance to protect you in case you went broke building this tunnel. Well, that's a natural precaution. Oh, yeah. But it was a personal insurance policy taken out in your name. Not for the firm. What's that, Jim? I know how you've been spending money, so I paid the premiums, but I was only thinking of the company. Well, here's what I'm thinking, Kane. The insurance company would pay off if none of these accidents could be traced to you, and you'd be saved from ruinous, from a ruinous bid. Yeah, but that's how it might look, Look, Jim, but... look, if there's one thing I don't like, it's to be kidded along. Now, do you still want me to find out what's behind those accidents? I have nothing to fear, Valentine. That's why I hired you. <laughs> I know I'm clean. Go right ahead, Valentine. Okay. Okay. If you're sure that's what you want. Uh, of course. You heard what I said. Yeah, but just remember, if I dredge up something from the bottom of that river that you don't like, you're the guys who ordered it. And now back to tonight's adventure of George Valentine and a million-dollar tunnel burrowing deep under a riverbed. A series of unexplained accidents that stopped the job cold. Why? That's the answer George has to supply. But so far, all he's learned is the rather startling fact that both partners in the contracting firm of Kane and Bowers have their own good reasons for wanting to see the tunnel left unfinished. Right now, George and Claire have just entered Hogan's Hog Pen, hang out of the Sand Hogs, where Big Bill Kane is talking to his workers. And I know we've been falling behind down in the tunnel. But you know, Jim Bowers and me were sand hogs ourselves. We can lick this job, and I've even hired Valentine here to make sure about them accidents. Now, here's an offer. You make up for lost time, and I paid time and a half to every man from then on. I could swallow that better, Brooksy, if I didn't know about that insurance policy Kane took out. Now, look, boys. That offer my partner just made you suits me, too. Just wanted you to know. Mm, I could swallow that easier if I didn't know about the offer Bowers got from that other construction company. Well, I don't know about you boys, but I still have my doubts. Oh, it's our cheerful old friend from the manlock. Don't get me wrong, Mr. Kane. I like making extra money. But when a job like this gets off on the wrong foot, it never straightens out. All right, Charlie, you're just getting the jitters. (laughs) All right, go on and laugh. But I wouldn't be surprised that if we pushed that tunnel another 50 yards, we'd run into a ledge of gravel and hard pan. Boulders will never get past. Just more trouble. Now, what we want to know from you boys is, are you with us or not? Oh, fine. That's all we want to hear. 
The drinks are on Cannon Bars. Don't get it. Come on, Brooksy. Where are we going, George? Just riding a hunch. We've got to be someplace before 5 o'clock. I wish you'd hurry, Mr. Valentine. You know the Bureau of Harbors and Waterways closes at 5 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, sure. Be through in a minute. Yeah, I think I found the map I want. Topographical survey, riverbed, section B, oleander through Perry Street. Uh-huh. Well, that's just where the tunnel is being built, George. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Yeah, and this would be around Pier 19. What are you talking about? I'm not quite sure, Brooksy. But we're going to ride that hunch a little harder. You're the watchman on this pier, Pop? Yep. Been here for the last 15 years. Huh? Hey, will you tell me something? Yeah? Those white bubbles coming up there on the river. Yeah, that's where they're working on the new tunnel, son. That's as far as they got in all these months. Yes, we read they're having a lot of trouble. Yeah, they keep working day and night, too. Can always tell by the position of that trawler out there just where they're working. You don't say. Yep. She's there every night, too. Sort of keeps right ahead the tunnel. I can tell that by the bubbles that come up out of the water. Hmm. I wonder what the trawler has to do with the tunnel. Yeah, I don't know. Man goes over the side in a diving suit every night. Suppose that's got something to do with the tunneling job, though. <laughs> Probably he's kind of a traffic cop down there. Clears out the fish so they can go ahead. <laughs> traffic cop, huh? Hey, Pop, you've been a great help. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Now where, George? Angel, what do you say I hire a motorboat and we take a nice romantic ride on the river? Okay, George, I agree with you. A trawler on top of the river has nothing to do with the building of a tunnel under the river. Then, Brooksy, why is it here every night, always just ahead of the shield of the tunnel? That's more than a coincidence. There it is, up ahead. Uh-huh. What are we going to say to whoever's aboard? May we drop up for a cup of old-fashioned clam chowder? Uh, if you don't mind, young lady, I'll do the talking. As always. Hey, up there. Hey, can we come aboard? Anybody home? No, and get away from Who's here. Gone? Well, uh... The truth is, we ran out of gas. Did you thought... hear me? I said get on your way. Well, surely you can spare enough gasoline I just... I see you didn't understand what I said. <laughs> George! Hey, what are you trying to do? Next time, I won't miss. Now get away from here and spare. George, what's going on around here? Look, Brooksy, I caught the name on that trawler. It's the Martha M. Tomorrow morning, first thing, check on the registry. See who owns her. Then pick me up at the tunnel. Valentine. I had to look around, Charlie. How long have I been sitting here in the man lock? Oh, just about 15 minutes. Seems like... Like I just got in here. And Charlie... 
I don't feel so good. You'll be okay. You're an old hand at this now. You've been up and down here a couple of times. But it seems like I got hammers in my head beating away. And you look like six guys lined up six miles away. You'll be okay when you get some fresh air. I know. I know where I want to go. Help me, will you? Yeah, you need a lot of help, mister. I've been watching you weaving down the block. I, I'm very sick. I feel rotten. I wonder why. I think I got the bends. Yes, and you've been bending over the bar too much. Hey, take me back, officer. The, the tunnel. There's only one place I'm taking you, to jail. So you can sleep it off. Come along with you now. Mr. Kane, Mr. Bowers, I know Mr. Valentine was here at the tunnel this morning. Okay, but what you're so excited about, Miss Brooks? He was supposed to meet me at the shaft, and he never would have gone without leaving some kind of message. I wouldn't worry about Valentine. I found out what he wanted to know, and he was waiting for that information. Information about the tunnel? What kind of information? I'll let Mr. Valentine tell you. Do you mind if I use your phone? No, we're right ahead. Hello? Police headquarters? Let me talk to Lieutenant Riley. Okay, I'll wait. Look, we hired your boss so we could keep this thing confidential. Yeah, that's right. Let's forget about ethics, boys. The man who's among the missing is someone I happen to care a lot about. Hello? Oh, Lieutenant Riley, this is Brooksy. Oh, I need your help. I can't find George. Oh, look, Lieutenant, will you check the jails and the hospitals and see what you can come up with? Oh, believe me, Lieutenant, I know what I'm talking about. We traced him down for you, lady, but you're not taking him out of here. Okay. Brooksy. Brooksy, my Oh, head. take it easy, darling. Best thing is to let him sleep it off. Can't you see this man is sick? Oh. He's got the chokes, the bends. We've got to get him back to that decompression chamber at the tunnel. Huh? What are you talking about? Oh, well, I'll show you. Wait a minute. Look, this, this tag here I around his neck is... A... I can't breathe. Oh, so they took it off him. Brooksy. Well, here, they gave me one, too. Here, read it. Yeah. This man is a sand hog. See, compression chamber. Rush. Yeah. Okay, lady, you win. And I hope we make it. Hello, Angel. Oh, darling, I thought you'd never open your eyes. Hey, why doesn't somebody turn that radiator off? It's hissing. We're back in the manlock, George. That's why you're feeling so much better. Oh. Hey, but what happened? Well, you were down in the tunnel this morning, and you must have come up too quickly. That's why they picked you up in the street wandering around. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember coming up. Then everything's suddenly going blank. I got all the dope on that trawler, the Martha M. Yeah? Well, it has nothing at all to do with the tunnel. It's registered in the name of C.W. Egan and his wife, Martha M. Egan. Oh, yeah, and the Egans were out fishing. C.W. in a diving suit and Martha M. with a rifle instead of a rod and reel. Mm. George, there's something else. No, there couldn't be. There was another accident in the tunnel. Oh, what kind of accident? I don't know. 
Let me get over to that phone on the wall, Brooksy. I want to talk to Ken. Okay, George. Hello, hello. Yeah? Hello. Bill Kane? Yeah. This is Valentine Kane. Yeah, Valentine. We're having a lot of trouble. You okay? Oh, sure. Just dandy. Heard you had a narrow escape. Well, what kind of accident was it now? The whole tunnel nearly got flooded. Yeah? Yeah. Just a good thing the new ship wasn't in yet. Poor Charlie, the lock tender, got killed. Charlie? Nobody will ever know why he was down at the tunnel face with a drill, but when we found him, he was over his head in the muck pile. I see. I don't know what the answer is, but it's the end of old Charlie Egan. Egan? George, what is it? Sure, uh, you know Charlie. Egan. So that's the answer. Uh, what's that, Valentine? Look, Kane, get Bowers and wait for me in your office. First, I'm going to see a lady about a boat. Then I got something to say to you. <laughs> Valentine, you don't know what you're saying. Just the same, gentlemen. It was Charlie Egan who was responsible for all the trouble here at the tunnel. That doesn't make sense. He was just a lock tender. He gave him the job more out of pity than anything else. Okay, okay. Then listen to this. Do you remember what Charlie said at the hog pen? Ah, not particularly. He said if the tunnel went another 50 yards, it would run into a ledge of gravel, hard pan, and boulders. Well? Huh? Well, the map of the Bureau of Harbors and Waterways didn't show it. But Charlie knew exactly what he was talking about. Uh, how, how would he know that? Uh, that's funny. I asked myself those same questions. How would an ordinary sandhog just in from Chicago know the exact topography of the riverbed? Yeah. He suspected I was getting wise and saw to it that I got a good case of the bends this morning. Just to make sure I was a dead duck, he took that tag from around my neck. Yeah, but why? Was he crazy? Well, that's a matter of opinion. I didn't want to believe the reason myself when I found out. I talked to Mrs. Egan. She's the lady on the boat. Now, she's in the outer office right now. Suppose we have her in and see if it's any easier for you to believe her story. Anything you say, Valentine. Okay. Would you come in, please, Mrs. Egan? All right. I want you to repeat just what you told me. Well, what shall I tell them? The two people wasted their lives looking for a will-o'-the-wisp, a treasure you were always going to find the next day. Treasure? Yes. Sensible people don't believe in buried treasure. And sunken ships bulging with gold, but Charlie did. Now, wait he a minute. He was the eccentric C.W. Egan, who spent a fortune and 20 years of his life looking for ships that had sunk with treasure aboard. And fantastic as it may seem, gentlemen, he found one. Didn't he, Mrs. Egan? Just a couple of months ago. He went down into the river every night. He kept prowling around the hull of that boat. He knew that there was gold there somewhere... He kept saying he'd find it any day now, his treasure. And then Kane and Bowers started to drive a tunnel. Yeah. Charlie knew it was going to meet head-on with the Granada, the old Spanish galleon he knew was there. It became a race against time. That's why he got a job here. Did all he could to keep the tunnel from getting any farther. Yep. And at night, every night, he'd go down to look some more. And I'd help him. And today was his last desperate attempt to flood us out Yes. He wasn't going to see anybody get to his treasure as long as he lived. And he kept his word. See, here's the check from Kane and Bowers. That's all washed up. So what do you say we go out stepping tonight? Oh, well, 
darling. Hey, did you see the paper this morning? No, why? Well, they raised the Granada out of the river last night. They did? Uh -huh, and there was a treasure chest, just as Charlie knew all along. Oh, so old Charlie was right after all. Yep, a chest packed to the brim with old Spanish coins. George, how romantic. Oh, yeah, but old Charlie wouldn't have been too happy about it. No, why? No. The whole batch was worth about a hundred dollars. Tonight's adventure of George Valentine has been brought to you by Standard of California on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and Standard stations throughout the West. Tonight's story was written by David Victor and Herbert Little Jr. and directed by Don Clark. Also heard in the cast were Francis X. Bushman as Kane, Herbert Litton as Bowers, Ruth Parrott as Mrs. Egan, Joe Duvall as Charlie, Franklin Pinky Parker as Sanders, and Leo Cleary as Harrigan. The music is composed and conducted by Eddie Dunstetter, your announcer, John Heaston. Listen again next week, same time, same station, to Let George Do It. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. Let George Do It, the episode called Under the River from the spring of 1948 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. Now for that comedy I promised you, Francis X. Bushman appears later in this show as the captain of one of the premier ocean liners of the day, the Queen Mary. The stars of the program are Marie Wilson, Kathy Lewis, and Hans Conried, whom you'll hear refer to a gypsy tea room, as they were called, places where fortune tellers would read your tea leaves. The episode comes from May 10th, 1948, and the NBC comedy, My Friend Irma. Jane! Jane! Yes, what is it, honey? What's this dotted line on the map of the world? Dotted line? Oh, that's the international date line. Isn't that wonderful getting the boys and girls from different countries to go out with each other? <laughs> well, that's what you can expect when you listen to my friend Irma. Friendship, friendship, just a perfect friendship when other friendships have been forgotten. Theirs will still be hot. Lever Brothers Company, makers of Swan, the soap with the exclusive super-creamed bland presents... Our friend Swan. With my friend Irma. Starring Mary Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane. to me, Jane Stacy shouldn't happen to a dog. A big one. A little one couldn't handle it. <laughs> you see, my boss and the guy I'm in love with, Richard Rhinelander, has suddenly decided to go to England on business. He says it's business. And there's no reason to doubt him, except that his mother and father look so happy about his leaving me. Why, I don't know. I'm just an innocent bystander. Perhaps they're under the impression that I want to get engaged to him. They're wrong. I just want to marry him. <laughs> What's more, let's face it, I don't mind shipping our money out of the country to help. I'm in favor of that. But it's going too far when they ship our men. But then that's the problem. Richard's sailing on the Queen Mary, so today I'm moping around and 
I'm not eating. Lost my appetite. Think for lunch I'll put a little salt on my heart and eat it with a dry piece of Melba toast. Oh, Jane, I have a feeling you're upset, aren't you? Me upset? Oh, don't be silly. The only reason I'm shaking like this is because I'm getting ready to make a malted milk. Oh, Jane, now I know why you're so nervous. You're thinking about Richard going to England, aren't you? Yes, Irma. Even though he hasn't left yet, I miss him already. You know, he's going to be over 3,000 miles across the ocean. Well, it could be worse. Worse? How could it be worse? If he only went 2,000 miles, he'd drown. (laughs) Well, I hope he does. Oh, what am I saying? Oh, Jane, listen to me. I'm your oldest friend, and this trip might be very good for both of you. Now you can find out how much you miss each other. Yeah, yeah, there's something to that. They say that separation is a great test. I'd like to believe. Well, it certainly is. Once Al and I were separated and we had a miserable time. Where did Al go? Nowhere. We were in the movies and a woman was sitting between us. (laughs) I know what it is to suffer. Yeah. I can imagine having to split a bag of popcorn three ways. (laughs) Hello. Oh, it's you, Richard. Uh, Oh, Richard, why must you go? Why don't you send your father instead? He'd love the trip, the old dear. (laughs) You have to go, but you love me. Oh, that's sweet. Sure, I'll come down to see you off. I... What? You want Irma and Al and Mrs. O'Reilly and the professor to come, too? Oh, that's nice of you, Richard, but it's not necessary, honestly. You want them to come. All right, dear, I'll tell them. Goodbye. Tell us what, Jane? What do you think, sweetie? Richard's invited the whole gang to see him off on the boat tomorrow night. A bon voyage party in his stateroom. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I I think I'll wear slacks. Slacks? Yes, Jane, if I fall off the boat, someone will yell, man overboard, and if I'm wearing a dress, I can drown while they're looking for the man. (laughs) Well, don't worry, honey, you won't fall overboard. Gee, you know, I hope Richard doesn't fall in love with any of those English girls. Oh, don't worry, Jane. Richard wouldn't fall for any of those English girls. They're all bow-legged. Bow-legged? Yes, they say a lot of them are cockneyed. Yeah Well, thanks uh, Thanks for straightening me out, honey And I suppose they're all so poor They have to live in the House of Commons Well, Jane, I I don't know anything about their real estate Come in It's only me, Professor Kropotkin Hello, Janie and Irma My two little teapots One with a fancy top, one with a loose lid. (laughs) A little joke I picked up in the gypsy tea room. Professor, you know, I don't know what it is, but you look so different. Huh? Yes, it's your eyebrows. I've never seen them so bushy. Bushy? Where's the mirror? Well, how do you like that? What can it be? Now I know. Last night when I kissed Mrs. O'Reilly, I must have slipped. These are her eyelashes. Steal kisses in the dark. Who would kiss her in the daytime? <laughs> With me, it's night madness. 
Tell me, Janie, what are you going to do with yourself while Richard's away? Oh, I'll keep busy. Incidentally, Professor, you're invited to Richard's farewell party on the Queen Mary. The Queen Mary? Mm Mm-hmm. And what a boat. It's really a hotel on water. Well, to me, that's no novelty. When it rains, my room has the same features. (laughs) But I'll go and wish Richard good luck. Come in. Hello, Miss O'Reilly. Girls, have you some aspirin? I think I'm getting a cold in my head. Of course, it can be my imagination. It's not your imagination. Here are your eyelashes. Oh, (laughs) thank you, Professor. Girls, lately he's been so sweet to me. For instance, last night we had a snack in the kitchen and he turned out the lights and held my hand. (laughs) Was that your hand? I was reaching for the pickles. Go along with you, Professor. Uh, Janie, when does Richard leave for England? Tomorrow night, Mrs. O'Reilly, and you're invited to his farewell party on the Queen Mary. Oh, bless him. I'm going right upstairs and bake him a nice cake in case he gets hungry on the trip. Or in case the ship needs more ballast. (laughs) Oh, hush with you, Professor. Come upstairs and talk to me while I bake a cake. And if you're a good boy, I'll give you a picture to hang over that hole in your wall. No, thank you. I don't want to cover that hole. It overlooks a beautiful view. Why, all you can see out of there is the city dump. Compared to my room, it's a beautiful view. <laughs> see you tomorrow night on the boat, Jamie. Goodbye. Bye. Jane? What, honey? Well, while Richard's away, maybe Al has a friend who will date you. That's very sweet, Irma, but I don't think the warden would let him out just for that. <laughs> Come in. Hello, Jane. Hiya, chicken. Hi, Al. Hello, Al. Honey, what are you looking so happy about? Chicken, you are looking at a millionaire. Oh, Jane, did you hear that? Al's a millionaire. Al, there are three people in this room, one of whom is a very big skeptic. Well, explain. Happen to have a a big big deal. deal. Yeah. Oh, Al, what is it? It's confidential. Al? Believe me, I'll keep your secret. In fact, I'm not even going to hear it. Goodbye, all. Sarcastic shrew. Would like to tame her. Oh, Al, don't look so... Don't look so sad. Don't let... Look, don't let Jane hurt your feelings. Tell me your new deal. I'm not a septic. Well, all right. It, it's a... Oh, Al, I think it's wonderful. It can't miss. Chicken, I'd like you to have confidence in me, but you go overboard. <laughs> Must hear the deal first. It's a report card with a railroad ticket printed on the back. So when a kid gets bad marks, he can leave town. That's wonderful. You know, a, a thing like that can stamp out all juveniles. <laughs> ah, Chicken, what's the use? I just heard myself say it, and it's nothing. And Jane's right. I'm nothing. Oh, but, Al, to me, you're everything. No, Chicken, it's about time I face facts. I can't get any place in New York. Well, uh, maybe you should go to a larger city. (laughs) This is the biggest chicken. But it's no good for me. This town has got me down. I gotta move on. Need new worlds to conquer. Oh, Al, you're just depressed. You'll feel better when you go to the party tomorrow night and see Richard off to London. Richard's going to London? Uh Uh-huh. Hey, chicken, that sounds like the spot for me. In that fog, a guy can get away with anything. I mean, uh, (laughs) nobody is poking their nose in his business. Oh, but, Al, you'll be on the other side of the ocean, and I'll miss you so. 
Every time I go to Coney Island, I see something washed up on the beach, I'll think of you. Tender thought, chicken. Now, all I gotta figure out is how I can get to London without paying. And there's only one man who can help me. Who else? Who else but... Hello, Joe. <laughs> Al, got a problem. Got to get to England on the Queen Mary, no funds. What's my move? Contact Saltwater Sam, who works very close with Limehouse Louie? Well, how will I know him, Joe? When I go down to the Queen Mary, I'll see a head sticking out of a porthole? Yeah, but there's a lot of portholes on the Queen Mary. Throw a rock at the head. If it doesn't duck, it'll be saltwater sand. <laughs> Used to work at the Coney Island baseball concession. Oh, yeah, I remember him. The guy was always complaining his feet were hurting him. <laughs> yeah, but Joe, how, how will he get me over? Uh-huh. 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 Mm-hmm. He'll pack me in a sealed can filled to the top with oil? But Joe, how will I breathe? What if I don't? The right is for nothing. <laughs> no, Joe, thanks for the effort, but do not wish to travel as a sardine. Goodbye, Joe. Chicken, Joe gave me the idea. I'm going to stow away on the Queen Mary. Oh, but Al, they're liable to catch you. Got to take that chance. Oh, but I'll miss you. Chicken, our future lies beyond the seas. Who knows? I may go to the continent, pick up some polish, contacts, maybe even a title. Imagine me coming back, a prince. Oh, what a thrilling day that'll be. A and I'll be waiting for you on the pier saying, Here, Prince! Here, Prince! Queen Mary to see Richard off. Believe me, Jane Stacy is one great actress. Hmm. I won't show him what my real feelings are. I'll be casual, indifferent, blasé. Think I'll take four handkerchiefs along in case I crack. <laughs> but I won't. I can control my emotions. I'll just say, uh, have a nice trip, Richard. And he'll kiss me. He'll kiss me. And I'll report immediately to the captain and ask to join the crew at no salary. What's the use of kidding myself? As far as we women are concerned, baseball is not the national sport. <laughs> and, as if I didn't have enough on my mind, Irma and Al are acting very strangely. They're behaving in a very offbeat manner. Irma, look, look we better get to the pier, honey. The boat will be leaving soon. And... What's going on between you and Al? Uh, don't worry about us, Jane. We'll meet you there. You'll meet me there? I don't understand. You two aren't up to anything. Oh, no. And why are you staring at each other? Uh, you heard that expression, drink to me only with thine eyes? We're on a binge. I was only trying to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, I haven't got time to discuss it now. I'll see you on the boat. And be sure that nothing goes wrong. Goodbye. Okay, chicken. We gotta act fast. Gotta promote an angle that'll take care of my passage on the Queen Mary. Al, I, I, I've got a thought, but I don't think you'll like it. Speak up, chicken. Many a great thought has come from the mouth of a child. Al, why don't you work your way across? Go away, kid. You bother me. Well, Al, Al, I don't know what other, what other way there is of going, but one thing I insist on. If you're going to go, it has to be honest. See what you mean, chicken. You can trust me. Got the angle. 
We'll stow away in a lifeboat. Oh, but, Al, that's not honest. What do you mean, chicken? Does anybody else go in a lifeboat? No. Well, then, if I'm not taking anybody else's place, it's honest. Oh, I apologize, Al, darling. You know, for a moment it seemed crooked, but when you explain it, it, it still seems crooked. But you say it so honestly that I know it's not crooked. Like that trait in you, chicken. If you were only the district attorney, this would be a pro progressive city for a man like me. Now, chicken, getting into the lifeboat is simple, but the main thing is, how do I get food and drink? Well, is that simple, Al? Just ring for room service. <laughs> chicken, don't you understand? No one must know I'm in the lifeboat, so must depend upon you to get the food to me. Oh. After two days, I'll come out and they can't throw me off. But, Al, uh, how will I do it? Easy, chicken. So they won't suspect me when I get on board, you bring a suitcase full of the necessities of life... Walk casually along the upper deck where the lifeboats are, slip me the suitcase, blow me a kiss, and then walk nonchalantly back to the pier. But, uh, Al, how will I know what lifeboat you're in? Well put question. You walk along and knock twice on each life lifeboat, like this. When you hear two knocks back, you know I'm under the canvas. All right, Al. Uh, chicken, feel the need of a rehearsal. Right. Now, you're on the boat, and yeah. someone comes up to you and says, What are you doing with that suitcase? What do you say? Do you think I'd let my boyfriend in that lifeboat starve? Chicken, don't you see? They mustn't know I'm in the lifeboat. We'll tell you what to say. You are a fashion designer, and you're taking some sketches over because you're putting on a fashion show. As you understand, a lot of women over there have nothing to wear. Got it? Uh, got it. Just to be sure I'm sailing with the wind behind me, repeat it for me. Well, that's silly. Give it back to me, chicken. All right, Al. I'm putting on a show over there for a group of women who are sketches, and they're going to be a show without wearing anything. <laughs> now, aren't you sorry you asked me to repeat it? Chicken, forget it. We'll give you a simple phrase you can't miss. If anyone talks to you, say you're going over with a convention of the Daughters of the American Revolution. You got it? Yes, I'm going over with the Daughters of the American Revolution. Perfect. See you on the boat. And don't forget the suitcase and the two knocks for a signal. Okay, uh, Daughters of American Revolution, suitcase and two knocks. Well, I'm in Richard's stateroom on the Queen Mary. He's driving me crazy. He's taking one last look at the New York skyline. And I'm a girl. I'd like him to take one last look at my waistline. But he's not going to leave before I plant a good kiss on him. Richard. Uh, what is it, Jane? Uh, haven't you forgotten something? No, oh, I don't think so. I've got my uh, tickets. No, uh, no, I, I didn't mean that. Well, there's my trunk and the large suitcase and my, uh, my visa. Richard, I I'm not talking about the things you're taking with you. I'm speaking about something you're leaving behind. Oh, I know what you mean, Jane. Oh, you're a darling to think of it. The kennel said they'd take care of my dog. <laughs> Richard, for your information, I cannot bark. <laughs> but you're also leaving me behind. Oh, Jane, I've been an awful fool. Oh, I apologize. Oh, well, don't waste time apologizing. The boat's sailing. Come on over here, darling. Oh, Richard. Oh, murder. Whoever you are, just slip it under the door and go away. It's only me, Professor Kropotkin. <laughs> Hello, Richard. I came to wish you a good trip. And I came along with the professor to give you my best wishes, too, Richard, darling. Oh, thank you, folks. 
Uh, Janie, we're not uh, interrupting anything, are we? Oh, no, no. Where are Al and Irma? Oh, they'll be along. Richard, here's a little going-away present for you. It's a cake. Well, thank you. It's my mother's recipe. She used to make it for my father. Richard, you'll be interested to know that Mrs. O'Reilly was an orphan when she was two. Oh, go on with you, Professor. He's such a boy at heart, always trying to amuse me with little games. Like when we came aboard, he wanted to play pirates. Blindfold me and let me walk the gangplank. <laughs> So I'll think of something else. Oh, Richard. Oh, I'm glad you're here, Irma. I don't want to sail without saying goodbye to you. Uh, where's Al? Oh, uh, he'll see you later, Richard. Uh, uh, like in a couple of days. What? Oh, oh uh, have a nice trip, Richard. And when you get to England, will you stop off at Oxford and bring me some of those shoes that the students make there? <laughs> oh, Irma, don't be ridiculous. Honey, what's the idea of the suitcase? Oh, I'll tell you later, Jane. Uh, I want to take a look around the boat. Oh, bon voyage, Richard. That's French. I, I didn't want to use it because this is an English boat, but you'll understand. <laughs> Thank you, Irma, and, and goodbye. Gee, now I've got to find the lifeboat where Al is. Well, miss, are you going to take the tip trip across with us? Uh, no, General, just part way. What? I mean, my boyfriend. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, this is a nice boat, General. I'm not a general. I'm a captain. Oh, well, you work hard and you'll get a promotion. <laughs> oh, where, uh, where are the lifeboats? Right up here on the top deck. May I carry your bag, miss? Oh, no, thank you. Is this your first trip abroad? Uh, yes, uh, I'm going over with my daughters to start a revolution. <laughs> what? What are you knocking on that lifeboat for, miss? Well, it's good luck to knock on wood. <laughs> Sir, haven't you any work to do, like throwing out the anchor or checking the oars? I have a crew to do that. Uh. Now what are you knocking for? Uh, I'm sorry, I thought I heard someone say, come in. <laughs> I beg your pardon? Lady, will you please stop knocking on those lifeboats? All right, I will. I don't wish to be rude, but it's just against the rules. Here, would you like a cigarette? Uh, no, thank you. Well, if you don't mind, I'll smoke my pipe. What's a captain without a pipe? I'll just knock out some of this tobacco. <laughs> what was that? Your pipe made an echo. That's ridiculous. I think there's somebody in that lifeboat. Oh, no, if there was anybody in there, Al would chase him out. <laughs> Who's Al? My boyfriend, the man in the lifeboat. What? Chicken, I don't know who you're talking to, but tell him to blow. <laughs> Whoever's in there, come out. Ain't nobody in here but us oars, folks. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Oh, a stowaway. Now, just a minute, Your Honor. I got influence. I know the captain. Oh, you do? Uh, uh, Al, let me handle uh, this, what? Chicken. The captain happens to be a very good friend of mine. I see. Al, Please, I Chicken. To... I was hired by the captain to inspect the lifeboats. Uh, Al, you What see... is it, Chicken? This is the captain. <laughs> well, Captain, this is a fine way to treat an old friend. 
Didn't you recognize me? No. But I do know that you'll be thrown off this ship. You could be locked up for a thing like this. Now, wait a second there. I'm a friend of Mr. Richard Rhinelander's. Oh, yes? Well, we'll just see about this. Come with me. Oh, gee. Richard, we have to go now. Please take good care of yourself, darling. I will, Jane. Have a good trip, Richard. Oh, bless you, my boy. Now, don't wait, Janey. Give him a great big kiss. Yes, it's an old custom to kiss people while leaving goodbye. Oh, I didn't know that. I must get tickets to someplace. <laughs> Save your money, Mrs. O'Reilly. You could go around the world six times and I wouldn't shake hands with you. <laughs> Shep, Professor. Go on, Janie. Give him a big kiss. I think I will. And thank you. I think you've been a grand audience all afternoon. Oh, forget it, Richard. I'll mail you a kiss. Come in. I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. Rhinelander. I'm Captain Pearson. I found a stowaway who claims he's a friend of yours. Irma and Al. Oh, well, you see, Jane, Al wanted to make contacts. And he saw... Oh, don't bother. Don't bother explaining. We're getting off this boat and you're not getting out of my sight, the two of you. Goodbye, Richard, darling. Bon voyage. Goodbye, Jane. So long, gang. Take good care of yourself. All ashore that's going ashore. Come on. Come on, hurry up. Follow me into this elevator. Come on, Professor, quick. Take it easy. Mrs. O'Reilly has my arm, and she hasn't hurried since Bull Run. <laughs> Come on, now. Now, let, let's make sure that everybody's here. Al, you, Kripa... My goodness. Where's Irma? Well, she was just here. She must have taken the wrong door. Last call. All ashore that's going ashore. Oh! Good heavens, she'll be stranded on the boat. Oh, we've got to find her. Everybody look. Everybody look in different directions. Oh, come on. Come along, Mrs. O'Reilly. Run. I can't, Professor. It's these new long skirts. Why do you bother with long skirts when it's a long hat you need? Come on. Hurry up, Al. Hurry. Steward. Yes, lady? We've been looking high and low for a friend of ours. She's a blonde in a red suit. A blonde in a red suit? Huh? Oh, yes. I believe she's the last person we let off the boat before we sailed. Before we sailed. Al, we're moving. Uh, isn't that the young lady you mean waving down there on the pier? Gosh, uh, if you get hungry, folks, there's a suitcase full of sandwiches in the third lifeboat. <laughs> boat, except for the fact that I got soaked to the skin and so sick I couldn't walk. It was a delightful experience. But I haven't forgiven Irma for the trick she and Al tried to pull, so I said, Irma, what in the world ever made you believe that Al would do any better in London than he does here? And Irma said, well, Al is very handy with tools, and I heard that the London bridges are falling down. Maybe he could fix them. <laughs> You know something? I'm living with someone beyond repair, and that's my friend, Irma. My friend.
friend Irma presented by Swan, another fine product of Lieber Brothers Company, was produced and directed by Cy Howard. Tonight's script was written by Cy Howard and Park Levy. Starring Marie Wilson as Irma and Kathy Lewis as Jane. The part of Professor Kropotkin was played by Hans Conried. Tune in next week one hour earlier and listen to the Lux Radio Theater, immediately followed by my friend Irma. This is CBS, where 99 million people gather every week. The Columbia Broadcasting System. The May 10th, 1948 episode of My Friend Irma with an appearance by Francis X. Bushman, who was born on this date 138 years ago. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Whenever we introduce The Big Show, we always say what many old-time radio buffs and scholars say, that it was the last stand of big-time network entertainment radio. NBC spared no expense. The show always featured an all-star lineup, including, in the excerpt we're about to hear, one of our two birthday boys tonight, the great song and dance man, Ray Bolger. Arguably the first star of radio, Rudy Valley, is on hand. There's a joke about his trademark singing through a megaphone, as is the actor and champion boxer Maxie Rosenblum, the Hollywood star Gary Cooper, the singer Julie Wilson, and the vocal quartet, the Delta Rhythm Boys, as they called themselves. Lots of references in the comedy, including the decidedly downscale restaurant chain, Child's, the Gillette Safety Razor Company's slogan, Look Sharp, Feel Sharp, Be Sharp, the Brooklyn Department Store, Abraham and Strauss, the old initials for the New York City subways, BMT, IRT, and IND, the names of a number of French celebrities, and those old racy French postcards, and the chipper, girl-next-door movie star, June Allison. You'll hear Mr. Bolger do his signature number, Once in Love with Amy, by Frank Lesser from the hit musical Where's Charlie. It was the very definition of a Broadway showstopper. And I know, because I was there, Charlie. When I was a kid, my mom, who loved Ray Bolger, took me to the Victory Theater in Dayton to see him in a road company of that show, and the audience brought him back for three encores. In the words of Edward Armuro, I can see it now. And you can hear it now minus the encores, from January 28, 1951, and NBC, its host, Tallulah Bankhead, with an hour-long excerpt of The Big Show. You're about to be entertained by some of the biggest names in show business. For the next hour and 30 minutes, this program will present in person such bright stars as... Ray Bolger. Jerry Cooper. Delta Rhythm Boys. Danny Kaye. Maxie Rosenblum. Rudy Valley. Julie Wilson. Meredith Wilson. And my name, darlings, is Tallulah Bankhead. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Big Show, 
Show 90 Minutes with the most scintillating personalities in the entertainment world. Brought to you this Sunday and every Sunday at the same time as the Sunday feature of NBC's All Star Festival. And here is your hostess, the glamorous, unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead. Well, darlings, this is the one big show that I've been waiting for all season. Did you get a load of all those wonderful men NBC lined up somewhere? <laughs> I got half a mind not to take the money this week. That's the half I'm sending to a psychoanalyst. Well, I was the only woman on this show until at the last moment some smart aleck booked in that gorgeous gal, Julie Wilson, to sing. Until then, it was a wonderful week, rehearsing with all the divine men and holding hands, going out to dinner and holding hands, dancing with them and holding them off. (laughs) Of course, I expect my check this week will be practically all withholding. (laughs) But, you know, men, towards the end of the week, they became almost unmanageable, kissing and hugging and... Really acting disgustingly. Honestly, I don't see how that Julie Wilson can stand it. (laughs) Men, they're all alike. As much as I hate to admit it, one of the most beautiful and talented song stylists who will sing, For Every Man There's a Woman, Miss Julie Wilson, accompanied by Meredith Wilson and his... Judith? Judy Wilson and me. Oh, so that's how she got on this show. Sing, sister, sing. For every man, there's a woman. For every life, there's a plan. And wise men know. Was ever so since the world began. Woman was made for man. Where is he? Where is he? Lover for me. For every prince, there's a princess. For every Jones. And if you wait, you will meet the maid, one for you alone, happy to be your own. Where is he, where is he, lover for me? Every hand a glove 
was a beautiful song, and you sang it beautifully. And you must come and see us again some year. Now, ladies and gentlemen... Oh, just a minute, Tallulah. If you don't mind, I have a date with somebody, and I'd like to wait until he's finished with his part of the show. Well, darling, why don't you go home, and I'll have him telephone you off the show. Which one is it? Rudy Valley. All right, I'll have him megaphone you. <laughs> so why don't you get into the rest of that dress and go on home, darling? <laughs> on this show for one glamorous woman. Yes, I know. So I'll wait. Uh, look, Julie, it is quite obvious that the only reason you're on this show is because you happen to be related to Meredith Wilson. But we're not related. Meredith spells Wilson with two L's. I spell my name with one L. Well, you got the L out of that once. Why don't you keep the name? I've been looking for you, Miss Wilson. I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Ah, Rudy Valley. Oh, Rudy, it's so nice to see you again, darling. I've just Excuse been... Excuse me, madam. Miss Wilson. As per our telephone conversation of Saturday, January 27th, when I called you person to person, evening rates, from the Sheraton Biltmore Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, where I'm currently appearing, this is to confirm our dinner engagement for this evening. A new paragraph. May I recommend several restaurants for your consideration? The Hollywood Brown Derby... The McFadden Doville, Miami Beach, or if you prefer someplace closer, Childs. Choice of one, no substitution. Childs. Why Childs? Why not Childs? I've been eating in Childs for a long time. I'm a man of habit. When I find something that pleases me, I stick with it. I've been with the same barber for 15 years. I've been with the same tailor for 21 years. As far as restaurants go, for the past 18 years, I've been with Childs. Congratulations. Have a cigar. Well, all right, Rudy. Any place you say is all right with me. Obviously. You look sporty. What happened to that dinner engagement we had for tonight? We had no dinner engagement, Miss Bankhead. Well, obviously, you didn't read your contract. If you will hold your contract up and light a match back of Clause 7... I never see the contracts. My lawyers take care of that. Appleby, Cranshaw, Bates, and Walsh. If you'd care to have dinner with them, you... Sauce of one again, huh? What's the matter, Tallulah? This guy making trouble for you? We had a dinner engagement, Maxie, and now he suddenly decided to take out Julie. Oh, yeah? Listen, you, you can't do that to Tallulah. I'll tell you a part. I'll, I'll beat your brains out. If I had any. I'll tell you the pieces, and don't think I can't do it. Well, stop 
shaking your fist at me. I didn't do anything. It's Rudy Valley. Oh, excuse me. I'm the culprit. What? Culprit, that's why. And I'd advise you not to engage in fisticuffs. While in college, I was boxing champion of the campus. Yeah, I've been on a campus myself. But if you're going to break the state with Tallulah, you got to fight me. That a boy, champ. Isn't this wonderful two men fighting over me? Uh-huh. I warn you, sir, if you insist upon this vulgar display of brute strength, I shall defend myself to the last ditch. I shall give two for every one I receive. I shall fight valiantly without compassion. And even though I shall be destroyed and ground to ashes like Phoenix, I shall arise from these ashes for all to see the truth, though crushed to earth, will rise again. Hey, what are you doing? Fighting me or acting me? <laughs> That's telling him, champ. Now, let's get the fight started. We shall fight Marcus of Queensbury. Two of us against one dame? Well, that sounds fair. Very well, here we go. Defend yourself. Don't worry about me. I'll take care of myself. You just take care of yourself. I can take care of myself. Well, I can take care of myself. I can take care of myself as well as you can take care of yourself. Well, just so you'll take care of yourself. I'll take care of myself. Okay, take care of yourself. I'll be seeing you. Look dull. Feel dull. And that certainly was the dullest fight I ever saw. I'm sorry I lost my temper to Lula. When aroused, I'm like some magnificent savage jungle beast. Well, music hath charms, they say. So how about soothing yourself with some music, darling? Yes, I'd like to sing a song with lyrics by Milton Berle. You took me out of this world when you took me in your arms. Well, soothe yourself.
Rudy, darling, you certainly stirred up fond memories. As I was listening to that beautiful, familiar nose of yours, I mean voice of yours. Now, Tallulah, I'll take it from anybody else, but don't tell me that you heard me sing as a little girl. Oh, did you sing as a little girl, darling? <laughs> oh, well, you must tell me about that sometime. Uh, but you know what I was thinking as I listened to you sing just now? I was thinking, this is the man who practically started radio. That's strange. I was thinking, this is the woman who's finishing it off. <laughs> uh, being the actress I am, I continue quite casually. Uh, Rudy, I was thinking of those days in radio when everything was new and exciting. And how you played such a big part in making it so. You don't know it, darling, but I was really one of your most ardent fans. Really? When you left radio, and as time went on, everything seemed to have gone flat. I miss so much hearing you sing. My time is your time. Your time is my time. Yes, time has certainly gone flat. I missed a single program you ever did, Rudy. Well, thank you, and I don't think I missed a single play you ever did, Tallulah. <sighs> and I followed your career avidly for years. Thank you, and I followed your career avidly for years. And here you are today, just as youthful and handsome as ever. Thank you, and I don't think I missed a single play you ever did. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tallulah... Yes, darling. I see you're still wrestling with show business. Ah, Ray, bold you're my darling. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you are now in for a real treat. Here beside me now is Broadway's most sensational dancing comedian, who for the past three years has danced, sung and clowned his way into the hearts of every New Yorker who has seen Where's Charlie? Opening again at the Broadway Theater. Opening again at the Broadway Theater. 53rd and Broadway. 53rd Broadway. Tomorrow night, the 29th of January. Tomorrow night, the 29th of January. And I personally am buying 50 tickets for the opening. And I personally am getting in on a pass. <laughs> <laughs> After a commercial like that, I should. <laughs> you can be my guest, Tallulah. Thanks for the use of your microphone to plug Where's Charlie. And uh, good night, darling. <laughs> oh, no, you don't, Rayna. You're not getting off that easily. We have a lot for you to do on this show, but the first thing I want you to do is that wonderful song, Amy, where you ask the audience to sing along with you. Well, uh, I never ask the audience to sing. You see, they love Amy as much as I do. That's why they sing. Do you think your audience will sing along with me? Oh, will they sing? They've been listening to me sing for 12 weeks. They're dying to get back at me. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Ray Bolger with Meredith Wilson's orchestra in Once in Love with Amy. Once in love with Amy Always in love Ever and ever Fascinated by her Set your heart on fire To stay Once 
You're kissed by Tear up your list It's a Ply her with bonbons Poetry and flowers Moon a million hours away You might be quite the fickle-hearted rover So carefully and bold Who loves a girl and later thinks it over Then just wits cold I'm a once in love with a With ever and ever, sweetly you romance her. Trouble is, the answer will be. And <laughs> Amy'd rather stay in love with me. Once you're kissed by Amy, tear up your list as Amy. Ply her with bonbons, poetry and flowers, moon a million hours away. Once you're kissed by Amy, tear up your list as Amy. Tear up your list as Amy. Ply her with bonbons, poetry and flowers. Be quite the fickle-hearted rover So carefree and bold Who loves a girl and later thinks it over Then just quits Yeah.
was Meredith Wilson and his orchestra, and we'll be back in a moment just as soon as I ring my chimes. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. to say first, thank you for the wonderful thousands of letters you've been writing. I thank you, and especially my maid thanks you, because of the wonderful mail you've been sending, she doesn't have to write all those fan letters to me anymore. <laughs> well, in recent weeks, the mail has been particularly big, but NBC has never let me see any of it. So I sent them a very sharp note, saying that I'd like to see some of that big mail. Well, this week, they sent me some of the biggest mail you ever saw. <laughs> Gary Cooper, Maxie Rosenblum, Rudy Valley, Ray Bolger, the Delta Rhythm Boys, and Danny Kay. I mentioned Danny Kay last because I want to introduce him first. <laughs> Danny Kay! Well, Danny, darling, let's get it over with. I suppose you come on the show to plug something you're going to do, a picture, a show, whatever it is. Let's get it over with right away. Oh, no, 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 not me, Tallulah. I'm not plugging anything. I'm here on a two-weeks quiet vacation. Oh, no plugs. Well, darling, that's nice for a change. But where are you spending your quiet vacation in New York? On the stage of the Roxy Theater, four shows a day starting this Wednesday. <laughs> My pretty country around the Roxy. And I'm sure things will be very quiet while you're there. Well, if they're not, I can always come here and sleep Sunday nights. Dear boy. <laughs> you know, your audience here is so well behaved, Tallulah. At the Roxy, you know, they keep moving around all the time, kids wandering up and down the aisle, always. I asked one of those little kids one day, I said, Hey, Sonny, where are you going? Never mind where the kid was going. Mm. And he told me. Ah, oh, you're at living, Danny. Now, no, where are here. you going after you finish at that uh, <coughs> plug theater? I'm going back to England. London, Danny. Naturally. <laughs> well, I shan't be able to go until my New York tailor finishes some suits for me, see? <laughs> Because I had an appointment with my tailors in London before I opened at the Palladium over there. Yeah, but I don't understand, Daddy. Why are you having suits made here? Are you having made in England, my dear? Good heavens, are you serious? <laughs> I say, that's rather ridiculous at the moment. I say, I, I, I couldn't possibly walk into my tailors in London looking as though I needed a new suit. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, darling. As a matter of fact, I always clean my apartment before the maid comes in to clean up. Oh, oh that's a frightfully good witticism. <laughs> you see, it is rather jolly, stout girl. Watch it, Buster. <laughs> well, 
terribly sorry, old girl. And what's that, too? I beg your pardon, so sorry, old boy. Lost my head, you know, carried away and all that sort of thing. Deeply sorry. I'm very desperately sorry. Carry on, my dear. No, thank you. Now, Danny, tell me. I see you. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, uh, sorry. I had a little left over, you know. <laughs> Sense of humor always gets the best of me. What? Now, Danny, that's a wonderful English accent, especially good for a boy who was born and raised right here in New York. Hey, watch your language, Cupid. <laughs> what do you mean, New York? It's Brooklyn. Oh, you come from Brooklyn? Do I come from Brooklyn? Born on the corner of Abraham and Strauss. <laughs> Do you know Brooklyn? Bushwicky Avenue? DeKalbe Avenue? <laughs> Brighton Beach? You ever been to Brooklyn? Oh, well, I've been thinking of getting up a safari any day now. <laughs> what kind of safari? Why don't you take a subway? I would rather die. <laughs> what kind of die? You take the IRT or the BMT? I'd rather take DDT. Oh, a wise guy, huh? So don't come to Brooklyn. Who needs you? We got Abbott's Field, home of the Dodgers, where Bankhead is the name of a pitcher. All right, Danny, let's get out of Brooklyn and back to the Giants. <laughs> Slip that in. While you were in England, did you stay in London or did you visit the continent too? Oh, je l'ai travaillé en sauteur, les plages en fleurs. Oh, how nice. You visited Spain. <laughs> no, 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 that is not Spain. It is la belle France. Paris. Gay Paris. I'm there so many of my French friends who I have known for loved for so many years. Jean Sablon. Jean Gabin. Georges Carpentier, Lucien Boyer, Charles Trenet, and Sugar Ray Robinson. <laughs> and uh, my very good friend, Maurice Chevalier. Ah, oh, yes, yes, Maurice. How is Maurice? Keeping a stiff lower lip, I suppose. <laughs> oh, he's doing very well. Uh, I hear from him quite often. He sends me long letters in French. I would be much happier with a postcard. <laughs> But uh, while I was there, I sang for him a song, a song called On the Riviera, which is uh, from my new 20th Century Fox Technicolor picture of the same name. Plug. <laughs> but I, I, I would like to sing it for you. Uh, may I? Uh, may we? No, no, I will sing it myself. <laughs> I have heard you sing before, monsieur. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, chef d'orchestre, uh, donnez-moi un downbeat, Sylvia, play. <laughs> if you look, you see the people from Paris playing on the Riviera. When there's ice and snow, it's nice to need to go where the moon clear, the moon is clearer. All the girls are gay and they parlez français anytime, any place, anywhere. If you want another kiss, but you don't think that you should On the Riviera Oh, you would if you're just out to bust out And see what life can give the place to live Is the Riviera You know, I remember when I was a little boy My father always told me the best place to go Riviera Yes, well, I 
remember I was no more than five years old, and he said to me, really, André, one we, all the girls are gay, and they parle français any time, any place, anyway. If today you have a million and tomorrow you're broke on the Riviera. Oh, Gary, Gary Cooper, darling, come over here. You're so divine, darling. <laughs> you know, people forget that you have appeared in a great variety of motion pictures and think of you only as the thoughtful and slow-talking Westerner. Well, you're not that way at all, are you, Gary? Nope. <laughs> of course not, darling, but that's Hollywood. You know, once you've played one part, that's the only part they think you can play. Now, now, for instance, take me. Now, since my first play, I've been typed as a high-strung, temperamental, excitable woman who screams at people at the top of her voice and can only say the most cutting, devastating things. But everyone knows I'm not that type at all. Why, I can be as sweet and gentle and lovable as June Allison. <laughs> Don't you think so, Gary, darling? <laughs> yeah. Well, darling, I hate to rush you, but, um... I think it would expedite matters a little if instead of saying, Yup, nope, you just nodded your head. Could you do that, darling? Oh, Tallulah. Yes, Ray Bolger? After watching you and Gary in that dramatic sketch, I got to thinking. That looks like a pretty, pretty easy work compared to what I do dancing all the time, and I, I think there ought to be a place in, for me as a dramatic actor. Some people say I ought to stick to my dancing. You don't think so, do you? Yep. <laughs> Wait a minute, Gary. What do you mean? Yep. Well, that yep was just answering that question that Tallulah asked me. If I could nod in my head. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, Gary, darling. What was the answer? <laughs> yep. And now I've forgotten what the question was What do you think, Tallulah? Do you think I'll have to go on dancing for the rest of my life? I'm getting sick of dancing all the time Coming home with my feet calloused and blistered I'm like a change Like sitting in a saddle The question was, could I nod my head? No, yes, Gary, I remember now, but tell me, darling um, uh, What do you think about Ray? Do you think he could, do you think he could play a cowboy? Do you, darling, think he could play a cowboy? Maybe Well, at least he didn't say no, Ray That's encouraging, isn't it, darling? Yep I could be rereading Gone with the Wind now tell me, Ray, have you had any experience playing Western Pops? Well, I could learn. All it takes is... <laughs> time. 
Yeah, you could have learned it right there. Have you ever ridden a horse, a roped a steer, or broken a bronc? Oh, I used to ride all the time down in South America. Really? What country down there? Down in, uh... There'll be a short pause for nation identification. <laughs> it must be what they mean by the wide open spaces. Oh, Tallulah. Oh, yes, Rudy Valley. May I pause here a moment? <laughs> yep. Hi-ho, everybody. Hi, Gary. Ho, Ray. Oh, this has got to stop someplace. I wonder if the audience is still with us. Are you still with us, darlings? Yeah. <laughs> 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 you didn't time it very well, darling. <laughs> well, thanks for that. But now that I've got you all together, uh, which one of you strong, silent men is taking me to dinner tonight? <laughs> The next act, ladies and gentlemen, the famous Delta Rhythm Boys, singing one of their great record hits, the song they made famous, Dry Bones. Are you ready, darling? Yep. <laughs> Yeah. 
that, Gary? Very good, aren't they, darling? Yep. <laughs> Danny Kay, while we're waiting for Gary Cooper's answer, would you sing for us now? I'll be glad to. Oh, there's a wonderful song from one of your pictures. I'd love to hear it. I'll be glad to. It's the only favor I'll ever ask of you, darling. Please sing that song for me. I'll be glad to. This woman only listens when she's talking. We got you on this program here, you sing. Why won't you? I know this line backwards now. Too glad be I'll. <laughs> well, I'll just never forget the night I went to see you in that picture, Danny. How that audience applauded that song. Now, if you sing it on this show, it'll be just what we need at this point. Look, no script. I'll be glad to. <laughs> oh, Danny, I must tell you what happened the night I went to the movie theater to see your picture. I'll be glad to. Oh, well, Danny, don't you know, there was a double feature that night, and I came in during the other picture. Well, I don't know whether that other picture was an A picture or a B picture, but I'm sure if the Phoenicians had seen it, they would have invented a new letter. Uh. Well, I got so mad. Well, it was such a waste of time, darling. I was just burning up in some callow usher. Came over to me and said, no smoking. Well, I could have just kicked him. <laughs> Only I couldn't find my shoes. <laughs> so I said to him, why don't you beat it? So he said to me, madam, you're attracting attention. And I said, well, that's more than that picture up there is doing. <laughs> so he called the manager. Only I knew he wasn't really the manager because he wasn't wearing a tuxedo. And this over-eager underling had the effrontery. To say to me that he would have me ejected from the theater. Eject me from the theater. What? <laughs> you can imagine what I told him. <laughs> oh, so, Danny, darling, would you sing the song for me now? I never got to see the picture. <laughs> Oh, you did? Oh, well, thank you, darling. It was just lovely listening to it. But I didn't sing it yet. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> well, sing it now, darling. We're waiting. This boy is so confused. What you have to go through on this program is sing one little song. We have a song we did in a picture called The Inspector General, and it's rather an unusual story. This one is the story of an unsuccessful gypsy. And in the picture, I played the part of the unsuccessful... 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 That's hard to say, you know. I played the gypsy who was unemployed. Whisking through the whispering woods in a wild rumini pony with a yak 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 and a yak to drunk and a yak to drunk to donate. I was a gypsy. 
the gypsy. The gypsy, the gypsy. The world thinks him tipsy and careless and free. But oh, the poor gypsy. His lot is not what it ought to be for. Night and day and day and night, there's a man that's sick of obeying with a whip in his hand. Over Gypsy he stands, and this is what he is saying: Hum, hum, hum. <laughs> Play, Gypsy, sing, Gypsy, dance, Gypsy, laugh, Gypsy, cry, Gypsy, live, Gypsy, die, Gypsy, drink, Gypsy. Drink to goodbyes and drink to hellos. Drink to the open. Drink to the close. Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will drink with my nose. <laughs> and so we drink. But first we sing. Oh, I forgot, ladies and gentlemen. How can you sing a gypsy song without the gypsy chorus? That has never been done before in the history of gypsies. So I would like to ask you all to do me a favor. Instead of you being the audience this evening. I would like you to be for me, gypsies. <laughs> well, it's very simple, really. We divide the theater into three graphs. One, two, three. Now, the first graph, I'm here over. You see, when I make a beat, you sing for me like this. Zoom. Everybody with me, please? <laughs> three gypsies. Everybody put an earring in your ear and make me a nice zoom. Everybody with me, please? <laughs> the center section here, up and down. When I make a beat, you sing for me like this. Stock, stock. <laughs> Everybody with me? Stock, stock. Very nice. <laughs> this girl up here, when I make a beat, you sing for me like this. I will give you. Everybody with me? Thank you, Eric. Let me hear the stock stocks. Ah ha ha! You see, you zooms you. One big zoom, everybody, please. Now we sing gypsy song. Now we go to the top of the class a little bit. You see, I will sing as a chemical ocean. You will sing zoom. We chew the note a little bit, all right? As a chemical But what happened to the shark? Please don't disappoint me, stockies. Let me have two nice stocks, please. Dive a for the shark. Very soft. Very loud. Very good. Yeah, Paul, yeah, that'd be good. 
I give you the B. You are late. Together we go. Zoom, stop, stop. Zoom, stop, stop. Stop, stop, so late. Faster. 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 What is it, Maxie? I hate to appear hereditary. Sit down, you're too for a minute. No, I got a line coming up here. Oh, sorry. I hate to appear hereditary or subdued or bicycological, but uh, I got a feeling I've seen you someplace. Well, naturally, darling, I've been in the theater for some time. No, no, you look exactly like a guy I fought in Milwaukee. How did I do? I was, I was robbed. Oh, you fighters of all alike. When you lose your rob, you're just a bum. <laughs> Please, Daddy, don't say that. I'm an artist. Just like you are. You're a bum. I've been in the cinema. You're a cinema bum. Uh -huh. <laughs> you won't say that when you see my new picture. Skip along Rosenblum. No, Maxie, I'd like to see you in a fight with Joe Lewis. You don't like me, huh, Rudy? I certainly do like you. I'm willing to wager that if you ever got in a ring with Joe Lewis, you could beat him. I'll bet he can, too. I'll bet $100 he can. I'll bet $100 on Maxie. How about you, Tulu? No, not me. Joe Lewis could knock him out over the telephone. <laughs> not long distance. I'll bet on Maxie. How about you, Gary? You want to bet on him? Oh, don't bother Gary Cooper, darling. He's still working on that other question. <laughs> Maxie, who are we going to get to cover the bet? Don't go to strangers. I'll take the whole bet myself. And now we're about to hear a special chiffon arrangement as only Meredith Wilson can whip it up, the song Yesterday's. And here is Meredith Wilson with the big show orchestra and chorus. Meredith, darling, if you please.
That was, as usual, divine. But I want to speak to you on a very, very important subject, darling. Now, you come here a minute. Meredith Wilson. Yes, Miss Bankhead. Now, Meredith, you're in charge of deciding who gets to sing the songs on this show. Is that correct? Uh, well, sir, Miss Bankhead, I uh, try to see that, you know, everybody who sings on the show gets a song to do. Is that so? Mm-hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Now, let me see. Rudy Valley sang. Correct. Check. Julie Wilson sang. Check. Then Ray Bolger sang. Check. The Delta Rhythm Boys sang. Check. And Danny Kay sang twice. And I see he has another song coming up. Right? Check. So I'm going to sing my song right now. Correct? I knew that check would bounce. <laughs> Lula, I, I, I think you've got a legitimate beat. Oh, I don't. I really do. And if they don't give you a song to do alone, I'll be glad to share my next song with you. Oh, darling, that's very sweet of you. Love Married it, some music. Danny and I are sharing a song together. Separate checks, of course. Yes, and separate keys, too, Mary. <laughs> Can you believe me when I said I love you When you know I've been a liar all my life You've had that reputation, said you were you I must have been insane to think you tell me the truth ha, 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 ha. Can you believe me when I said we'd marry When you know I'd rather hang than have a wife I know you said I'll make you mine But who would know that you would go for that old line ha, 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 ha. Can you believe me when I I love you when you know I've been a liar. Nothing but a liar. Nothing but a liar. All oh, my doggone cheating lies. You said you wouldn't love me. That's what I said. And never would do me wrong. Talk to me, Trudeau. Talk to me. Wait for you to wait. Baby, you must be loony to trust a lower than low two times like me. You said I'd have everything. A beautiful diamond ring. You're really naive to ever believe a full of baloney phony like me. How about the time you went to Indiana? I was lying, I was down in Alabama. You said you had some business you had to complete. Well, I was doing, I would be a cat to repeat. And what about the evenings you were with your mother? I was romping with another honey lamb. To think you swore our love was real. But baby, leave us not forget, I'm also a heel. <laughs> Can you believe me when I... Said I love you when you know I've been alive. Nothing but a lie. Oh, my no, no good. Good for nothing. Well, darling, 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 darling. This about does it for tonight, and I only want to say, oh... Uh, oh, Tallulah. Uh, yes, darling, Gary. About that question, whether I like the Delta <laughs> Rhythm Boys. 
I just want to say that I think they're one of the finest quartets it's been my pleasure to hear. And their rendition of that song was one of the most beautifully arranged and delightfully executed that I have ever heard in my... Well, Gary, won't you please stop? You've done nothing all evening but talk, 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 talk. All through the show. I'm sorry, darling, but it's time now for me to tell our audience that I guess next week will be Fred Allen, Robert Cummings, Lorraine Day, Jimmy Durante, Leo DeRocha, Fulton Hoffer, Judy Holliday, Frankie Lane, Jane Pickens, and others, and of course, our very own Meredith Wilson and his big show chorus and officer. Until then, may the good Lord bless and keep you. Brother near are far away. Julie. May you find that long awaited golden day today. May your troubles all be small ones and your fortune ten times ten. Maxie. May the good Lord bless and keep you till we meet. Again, Danny. May you walk with sunlight shining and a bluebird in every tree. Meredith, may there be a silver lining back of every cloud you see. Rudy, fill your dreams with sweet tomorrows. Never mind what might have been, Gary. May the good Lord bless and keep you till we meet again. The Delta Rhythm Boys. May you long recall each rainbow, then you'll soon forget the rain. May the warm and tender And keep you until we meet again. May the good Lord bless and keep you till we meet. Till we meet Good night, darlings. Coming up, Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. The star-studded Big Show from 70 years ago this month. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. 
I hope you feel that way too. 